I'll never turn to the dark side. You failed, Your Highness. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. So be it, Jedi. designed or probably designed uh once we're done to make you go and call your father or whoever your father figure was is in your life uh because we are going to go visit our force ghost dad that is actually really hard to say (laughs) actually now that i'm looking at what i've written because this is a double of phil alden robinson's build dreams and richard mark wayne's Technically, also George Lucas, but people forget that it was Richard Mark Wayne uh, uh, that actually directed this. Return of the Jedi. Yes, we're doing a original Star Wars movie. And here with me, who actually suggested this amazing meaty double, he's become a really good friend. He also uh, is the king of the uh, mid-budget 90s movie. It is, of course, Jackson Boren. Hey, how's it going? Lindsay, thank you for having me back on. This is, it's it's great to be talking this double with you in the year that I feel like has become the year of the double feature because of, you know, all of the, the Barbenheimer stuff. That was one of the things that I came in immediately wanting to talk to you about because you're sort of my, you're like you're my authority on what makes a good double feature. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like that following that whole Barbenheimer thing, everybody wants to make fetch happen again. And, yes. You know, it's, it's not like gonna few, happen. Yeah, a few weeks ago they they announced the Taylor Swift concert film and that it was coming out the same day as the Exorcist movie and so all of a sudden there was like the Extra Swift thing and I was like uh, do people really really want double features to be a thing again or is it just like we crave the memification of cinema? Uh, I think we crave the memification of cinema, which I'm not actually that bad about. Mad about. Yeah. Um yeah. it's fun. It's fine. It's Barbenheimer was a special accidental thing. It was more Warner Brothers trying to get back at uh, Christopher Nolan, I think, is why they, what my theory is anyway, it probably was just like this, you know, oh, we're getting two volcano movies this year, like within months of each other, that kind of thing. But it sort of created because it was just two really good directors making two seemingly very interesting projects very different from one another. I mean, just in color scheme, pink and brown. Um, I think yeah. it kind of caught people's attention. And I enjoyed doing a Barbenheimer. I did also, my favorite has also been uh, Saw Patrol, but I don't know if I can go and see a Paw Patrol movie. So it, I like that one, but I think it's, I like the idea of people just trying to graft onto 
two movies and see if they actually work together. Um, but it's more about the the name. But I think, yeah, Barbenheimer was a special kind of cinematic experience that I don't think we're going to get for a while. Um, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think the audiences that they had were initially on their own large enough that because there was even a little bit of overlap that people were just like, I- I'm not going to choose. I just want to go see both. And then that just became a thing. Um, you know, the double bill thing, I it, this actually made me go back and think about, okay, well, what are some of my favorite like same day box office double features that you know, whether or not I, I didn't necessarily get to see these in the same uh, day together, but they're just like fun things to look at. And the three that I came up with were um, Austin Powers and Breakdown came out on the same day. Um, the Matrix and 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh, that would have been the fun one. Yeah. yeah. I think I did. And, yeah. I wish I did that one. Yeah. And then the ultimate one, which is it's the ultimate Kurt Russell double feature is Escape from New York and the Fox and the Hound came out on the same day. Okay. That would actually be an amazing double feature. <laughs> to yeah. be fair, yeah. that would be um, <laughs> that I could, I could kind of work that one. Um, no, it's interesting because I know there's a lot of people like say Anthony King will um, sometimes put a marquee up of things that were coming out around the same time. And it's always going, okay, which double feature would I do? Cause I was never that kid. I didn't really start doing like double features until I was like, early 20s and i had like the power of dvd and uh, dvd i could start putting things together um but as a teenager in the 90s it was i'm just gonna see austin powers and that's it because you know you have to go up with your friends and try on clothes and eat mcdonald's and um be a general mall rat um while while doing these things so it was never just about going to the movies like it did when i got older when i realized I could just go see this movie that no one wants to see by myself. And then no one gets angry at me that I made them go see Jason versus Freddie. Like that was exactly (laughs) do this by myself. And then no one goes, why am I here? Right. Right. So, I mean, and we were, we're dealing on, uh, dealing with, um, you know, allowance budgets. So I, you know, I couldn't, I can't afford to see double features every time. No, I mean, I had to get a cheeseburger as well. And then some shitty plastic jewelry thing from whatever store. So yes, I, allowances were quite restrictive. But the when you look at sort of days that, especially in the 90s and the 80s, and 90s, because that's when I was going to the movies a lot, I was just like, oh man, um, what you said was with the Matrix? It was, yeah, 10 things I had about uh, you. I'm like, yeah. oh, I, I could have easily done that one. That would have just been so easy to do. Yeah, yeah. And I know I, I, know I saw both separately, but I mean, just like, yeah, the the sweet and, and salty, you know, I think those would be really fun to to have seen together. Yes. It, it kind of represents everything I was watching in my teenage years, 10 Things I Had About You, especially because it was a Shakespeare remake and all the thing and stuff. And then you have The Matrix, which is kind of going to be like, blue, which blue, everyone's mind in 99. I don't know how I can stress enough that The Matrix was like one of those movies that anyone who sat down and watched it did not come up the same person as they went in. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um no, this is um brilliant. And yeah, I love double features and I was very happy to be part of Barbie Barb and Heimer. Um mm-hmm. just because that was um that was just a fun experience. And just yeah, just watching everyone's reactions to each movie was was fascinating. Yeah, so yeah, we might as well just jump into this because I mm-hmm. there's actually a lot to talk about with, with these. It's yeah. um, both movies are kind of like that, but for completely different reasons. I will say, you know, I br- I brought this to you, to you like months and months back, even before the last episode we did together, and I was I was going through and trying to think about, well, you know, why was it that 
this was like a theme or something that stuck out to me. And the, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, well, the reason I think I brought up the sort of father's and son's topic was like, I felt like there were so many different attempts at sort of tackling that kind of relationship, whether it's whether it's between a father and a son or a daughter or things like that, that the double feature possibilities were sort of endless. You know, when we look at these relationships, you know, whether they're dysfunctional in the movie or there are these powerful connections and we can, you know, we can look at something like, um, you know, uh, interstellar or, you know, something that's maybe less grandiose, but we can relate to these things where we see a little bit of our own experiences in them. And I thought, wow, there's just like so much that you can pull from that. And since I'm a dad now, it's kind of impossible for me to watch movies like this and then not apply my own, you know, apply it to my own experience in my life now and see whether it's like, oh, I, you know, I aspire to be that kind of dad or don't want to screw up like that. Um, you know, those those kinds of things. Because movies have an endless, endless supply of terrible dads, as we'll get into with Jedi. Right. But it right. is... Um, it is so much because you is I was I was going to bring up that you are now a father, so you are probably looking at these movies going, well, I want to be this kind of father, but still looking back to your own parents yeah. or parents and going, oh, okay, this yeah, you kind of got a more of a um, yeah, more of a kind of a thing going. Whereas I'm like going, yeah, this is the kind of movie that makes me want to go call my dad, or this is the movie that my dad introduced me to. So it's kind of yeah got those especially with star wars which i'll get into my random but it is um no this is a really fascinating double in so many levels that is about the father but yet also kind of goes into these really kind of connections especially watching fields of dreams straight after watching uh return of the jedi a movie i've seen quite a few times and then going back to field dreams and going oh this is like a really good double like so good yeah, yeah. I mean, the themes are closer, and we'll talk about it. the themes are closer in some places than you would have thought. Um, and I, you know, you were talking about the power of movies. I, as I was kind of going through my notes and thinking about this this double, I thought back to movies that really kind of inspire me, or that I that resonate with me when I think about the the themes of of being a dad or or your relationship with your dad. And one thing that really popped into my head was like in college, even before I was married, before I had kids, I saw the pursuit of happiness. Oh, and that yes. was one that really resonated with me. I can remember it hit me in such a way where I was like, you know, I, you know, this father who would stop at nothing to provide a better life for his kids. And I just remember it was a scene where Will Smith and his son are in that bathroom, that like subway bathroom, like spending the night in there and he's it's kind of like hit him like the where the place that they're at they're kind of at rock bottom and there's like tears streaming down his face and it's that moment that stuck with me into parenthood that's like this small illustration of like the power of movies that like you you want to do everything that you can to provide a better life for your kid yes you know and then on the inverse of that the other one that the other one that pops out to me is um have you seen uh, Alexander Payne's Nebraska? Yes, yes I have. Where the so, father is far more interested in anything that is not his son and exactly. his son is desperately desperate to have a relationship with him. Yes, yes I have yeah. seen that movie, yeah. Uh, you know, and whether you like that movie or not, it's just one of those things that I feel like captures that experience perfectly of being <laughs> like being the son or a daughter who is, you know, you've grown up with a with a parent who may be absent or may not have 
giving you the attention that they should. And now you're having to take care of them and resentment and all of those things that come, come with that as you're growing into your own adulthood. I just felt like that was another one. That's like, man, this is a great, great example of a movie like that, where it's like, bam, you know, parenthood and adulthood. It it really is. I mean, I went and saw my parents uh, just last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago now. And I've always credited my dad for making me a massive movie nerd. I kind of realized that I don't think he realized he did this because <laughs> because it wasn't like I'm going to turn my child into a movie nerd. It was more, well, I'm going to watch this. So if the kid's around, the kid's around. Or, okay, my kid wants to go see the latest Spielberg. Yeah, so I think... Because I did show, I said, oh, okay, I've got to watch a few movies for the podcast. Do you want to watch them? One of them happened to be, I know he usually loves Westerns, but one of them happened to be uh, a spaghetti Western, a very strange one called Kiyoma. And my dad watched the whole thing, bless him. Um, but he turned to me and he goes, I don't know about that. The lead actor looked like Keith Richards. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so, it, yeah, so my memory of my dad being this kind of absolute force in how I was shaped in terms of the things that I now like. I think if you asked him, he would be surprised by that. I don't think he kind of recognized that, okay, so I'm watching a Harrison Ford movie. My six-year-old's watching it with me. That's fine. I don't think he kind of clicked to, oh, that's going to be, I'm I'm doing something to my child. I don't think he even recognized that. He was like, I'm just, I'm tired at the end of the day. I want to watch a Harrison Ford movie. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah, um, and I'm kind of going, going, this is father and daughter time. This is great. And it being the complete opposite or him taking me to the movies because he had no one else to go with and I would go with him. But it was never like a lot of uh, film Twitter dads will go, no, no, no. I'm going to introduce my kids to these things so they have that film education. My dad was never like that. It was like, no, I want to go see whatever new Spielberg's up. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's uh, that's also, I think, when it comes to being a dad and like at least like including your kid in your life and making mm. them not just like an accessory, but like, Hey, we're going to do this together and we're going to like participate and you're going to be a part of my life. Um, you know, even if it's, even if it's not just going to see a movie, like that was, that was something I, I was talking to my dad um, a while back about the movie chef. And oh, how, yes. Um, that was something that I, I really took away from that because, you know, in that movie, John Favreau's character, he's, you know, gotten fired from his restaurant job and he's starting this food truck. And at the same time, he's trying to grapple with his relationship with his son. And the way he does all this is he sort of like makes his son part of the, his son goes from being just sort of like on the side to like his son shows him how to use social media, which is like an interesting thing because normally social media drives parents and kids apart. Yes. And so the fact that it's like used in this movie to like bring them together is really interesting. And then there, and then it's also like a road trip movie. So I don't know. That was like something that I took away from that is that like, you know, how to make your kid part of your life in a way where they're not like a drag, where they're like a participant in who you are. And that, that was really a, resonant with me no i i love chef but i had a very completely different experience with that movie because my partner used to well he's not a he doesn't work in the kitchen anymore he, he teaches now but used to was a chef and so watching that with him was more about the chef side than anything else like yeah 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 it's that a was, great movie yeah. though i love it is chef. a really good movie chef is a really yeah. yeah it was one of those ones where you're like oh Favreau is a good director he, he is it wasn't just a fluke with iron man he actually yeah. He understands a lot to do with storytelling and kind of um, the themes and you want if he wants to pull in and everything like that. So, 
Yeah. And I would love, I would love for like, if, if Favreau continues to make like big blockbusters or if he's doing the Mandalorian thing, things like that, just every couple of years, come back and give us like, I know that swingers was, was Doug Lyman, but he wrote it. And yes. then coming back and doing chef felt like a return to his roots. It did. And I, I would love for Favreau to just do that. Like every few years, you know, you can make your Disney money, but just give us something small and like intimate like that. Exactly. Considering Chef was made at a point where he was very frustrated with his career and that was kind of his outlet to go, I'm very frustrated with people telling me what to do. I'm just going to get a little truck and go do my own thing. And then they give him the Mandalorian. He's like, well, okay. So (laughs) I don't blame him. I would do the exact same thing. Disney rolls a dump truck of money to your house. Yeah. Um, But no, I think it's a fascinating double in different ways you approach it because you always have... um, even parents who maybe people who did not grow up with a father may have had a father figure or kind of relating them back to how, especially with a single parent who's maybe always working or something um, or that kind of thing, like you mentioned with the suit of happiness, that scene in the subway bathroom, it's kind of, everyone's going to have their own experiences to put into the movie, which is, I, I love it's, it's always yeah. that can be that kind of um, it's that type type of double. Yeah. And I think um, that's the effectiveness of films like this, where they're measured by the way that they draw on a spectrum of emotions from a broad audience, not just, like I said, not just from fathers and sons, but it's something where there's something where you can tap into it and you're like, I get that. That's something I've felt before. Yes. And I think that's, you know, yeah, that's there. That is definitely there with with both, both movies. Um, so yeah, we might as well jump into it as uh we're gonna go fill mm-hmm. the dreams then we're gonna go for um the jedi and the ewoks um which is now what i'm calling return of the jedi <laughs> <laughs> okay jackson the curtains are opening and what is going to be your first trailer for field of dreams okay so since the field of dreams puts costner in this sort of pitch perfect role as the son struggling with his his relationship with his dad i thought you know what's more what's more appropriate than to pick a title that put Costner in the other role of being the imperfect father? So I'm going with uh, 1994's The War. Oh, I don't think I've seen this. There's only one thing standing between us you, and a perfect summer. The Nikki's are coming. Get lost and leave the trolley. Hey, do you guys tell me about this place? Of course not. Well, you can cut off every hair in my head, but I ain't telling you, dang it, my dang. You two couple of wild Indians, aren't you? Self-defense, Dad. Dark territory now. You went to war to fight for people you didn't even know. But in the end, I killed more people than I saved. This is our house. Don't you think we ought to fight for it? Don't you recall a damn thing Daddy's told us? Boy, sometimes all it takes is a split second do something you regret the whole rest of your life yes so this is directed by john abnett and this is right after he did um fried green tomatoes and the war is sort of the small coming of age movie that costner decided to do when he was basically at his peak um so he's coming off of yeah he's coming off of like a combined like one billion dollar box office between bodyguard Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Dances with Wolves. So he's got the blank check of blank checks here. And each of those like raked in $400 million. So he's basically untouchable at the box office point. Uh, Elijah Wood has done like Forever Young, 
Radio Flyer and Huck Finn and Good Son. And so he's like the strongest dramatic child actor at this point. I was going to say, and, and he got Elijah Wood playing the kid. So this, yeah. Yes, so they, they bring them together and it's, yeah, the father center bond in this movie is, is probably the strongest element in the movie. And it's a period piece. Uh, Costner's uh, a Vietnam veteran who comes home and is learning how to be a family man and, and raise his son, neither of which he's particularly good at in this small, like rural town that's rejecting him and his kids and, Elijah Wood and his sister are both sort of struggling because they're dealing with a lot of kids like bullying them. There's this sort of group of hillbilly kids who are are bullying them. And then at the same time, there's sort of a racial element because it's dealing with um, like the South in in, in that period of time. I think it's like in the 70s. And so it's tackling a lot of things at once. Uh, I just think it's a really cool little movie that exists in his filmography, but doesn't get much love these days. And it has, has like a feeling of like stand by me a little bit as well. Um, so yeah, yeah. I really like the war. I need to see this. Cause I always considered that Kevin Costner as one of those um, actors who kind of wanted to epitomize this kind of American hero and to have mm-hmm. him do as almost a family friendly version of the uh, born on the 4th of July is interesting. Mm-hmm. He liked to go to war to war difficult, prickly characters, which I think you see when he does build up his, oh, no, I'm the American movie star. Um, yeah. This is probably the first thing. Then he goes on to um, Waterworld and, and The Postman. But it's, um, no, this is this is fascinating. I really want to check this out. Yeah. And well, and whereas he is a little bit more of like a, like a, an ideal sort of American hero sort of um, archetype in Field of Dreams, He's a very flawed character in the war. He's hmm. he's showing a lot of vulnerability and he's he's struggling more as a father um, in that film. So it, it was an interesting parallel to to put alongside Field of Dreams. No, this would be a fascinating one to put uh, against Field of Dreams, and I am really fascinated to check that one out. That is going on the list. Thank you. I love <laughs> when people do that. I'm like excellent. Yeah. Um, no, that is absolutely fascinating. I went in so many directions with my trailers. Um, but I think I have, uh, no, you know what? Okay, I'm going to go. I think I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to go the silly to the very serious. So my first one is it's probably how I was very much introduced to the concept of um, Field of Dreams, but this was more in a, if you will build it, they will come and to go see a concert because I'm going to go for Wayne's World 2, 1993. In their first movie since their last one. What's it called? It's called, uh, the. It's called Wayne's World 2. Yes! Wow. People need to be entertained. They need the distraction. Welcome to Makita's. Uh, yes, uh, I'd like ruler, Ugger Ox, and a Makita cop. What? They've moved out of the basement. I'm what you call Sans parents. And into the spotlight. Yes, and could I please have a donut and a. Let me try to recap the order. A crawler, two sugar pucks, a Stanley cup, a large coffee with cream, a raspberry jelly donut, orange drink, and a box of five holes. Yeah. Thank you. It's the love affair of the year. I'm Honey. Horny. Nice to meet you, Miss Horny. Take me, Garth. Where? I'm low on gas and you need a jacket. Yes. (laughs) I... Look, I think the first Wayne's World that Penelope Ferris directed is a straight-up comic masterpiece. It's one of those 90s comedies that have aged even better than to what it was back in 92. 
I don't think I can say this exact same about Wayne's World 2, but I have seen that movie. I have seen probably the most movie I've seen at all time is Wayne's World 2. I could, there was a stage where I could just quote the whole movie. It, um, crush the eyes and dot the T's. Um, yeah. Adopt the eyes, uh, crush the D's. Um, I adore this movie, this silly, silly, silly little movie. Yeah, I love I love <laughs> I love both films, and yeah. this was one that was like when I thought, oh, maybe this will end up on there. I was really happy because I, you know, I saw it in rep a couple of years ago. I saw it in theaters as a kid. This is like when I say, um, you know, I dragged my dad to every silly movie I wanted to see as a kid, and this was one of them. So I'm really glad. I love like Wayne and Cassandra. Like I, I have this weird like obsession with that that couple as well. Like I told, I would tell friends, I want to see the like Linklater's before trilogy, but just with them, just yeah. them walking around <laughs> and being like silly and goofy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I love Wayne's World too. Uh, great choice and great. Um... Yeah, and just Garth on the side holding three ice creams like that would be perfect. And no, it is. I just. Charlton Heston Sharp going, I remember Girl on Home Street. It's, I mean, it is very gag-based. There isn't really a plot. I mean, the whole thing is that they are going to build because the half-naked Native American uh, took them on a dream to go see Jim Morrison who told them, told him he must put on a concert, which turns out to be Wayne Stark. Um, and, of course, watching this, um, I, if you've seen any of Phil Eldon Robinson, you know he has a thing for the 60s like th that yeah. was the most ideal time in human history uh which we got told a lot in the 80s <laughs> which yeah. probably now we know maybe <laughs> not exactly how it went down um yeah. but no the 60s were the ideal time and uh this is definitely referring to woodstock hence the wayne stock mm -hmm. and yeah no it is um it's a very silly movie but I mean, this was a movie that was referencing everything I loved, like the Jurassic Park scene and all that kind of thing. So, no, that is yeah. going to be my second pick. And anytime Christopher Walken can show up as like a hammy, like comedic yes. villain, like he's great. Yes. Yeah. Rip Torn showing up was also one of my favorite jokes when they're doing that whole Rip Torn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it is. It is not, doesn't have the power of kind of what the first movie does but just for dumb jokes like a, a, every second it's uh where's well too for me yeah um cool. especially the roadie who goes i better to death with his own shoe um yes. the brown m &M. <laughs> so yes uh what is going to be your second trailer jackson before i keep quoting okay. <laughs> no worries um my second trailer so i just i wanted to go with something like field of dreams that had sort of like a mystical like fairy tale element but still you know keeping into the theme that we're talking about and so i had to go with uh 2003's big fish from the imagination of director tim burton most men they'll tell you stories straight through it won't be complicated but it won't be interesting either did you ever think that maybe you're not too big but maybe this town is just too small when you meet the love of your life, time stops. And that's true. Your mother was never supposed to marry me. She was engaged to somebody else. Forget it, kid. Don't waste your time. She's out of your league. You don't even know me. Sure I do. You were hot stuff back in Hickville. But here in the real world, you got squat. Now, I may not have much, but I have more determination than any man you're ever likely to meet. Sandra Templeton, I love you and I will marry you. 
our Tim Burton movie I still have not seen yet. I keep meaning to. Um, oh, you have not seen it? No, I know about okay. it. I know it's very fantasy-based. It's definitely a father-son relationship. Um, but for whatever reason, I still need to check this movie out, considering how big of a Tim Burton fan I used to be. This is, feels very, I feel like I failed. Yeah, I know, and I don't, I don't blame you. I know a lot of people will claim that Tim Burton's like last good movie was like, you know, Sleepy Hollow or something hmm. like that. But I think this marks it for me as far as like the beginning of the end. Like this, this was. I mean, and, and again, like I keep, I keep wanting Tim Burton to catch the thread again because, you know, he was one of my favorite directors growing up. I still maintain that like his first decade of work is sort of untouchable. He as as far as like modern filmmakers go. Um, but you know, just looking at this big fish just sort of captures a lot of the same feelings of nostalgia and trying to, trying to catch up with someone that you're losing a grasp on because, you know, essentially in this movie, uh, Billy Crudup plays the son and, uh, Albert Finney is his father. Um, and his father's basically on you know on his deathbed and he's trying to learn more about his father and his father's telling him all these sort of like wild stories about uh growing up and meeting his mother and all these things and the way that big fish sort of like unravels this whole story you know it's this man trying to repair his relationship with his dying father you know it's not a new concept by any stretch but the way in which um the way in which the son navigates his dad sort of over the top stories and discovers the truth beneath them is just, it's magical. And in a way that I feel like matches right up with what we're talking about with field of dreams. Um, I think that before, uh, because the story is told through this sort of whimsical, almost fairy tale like device, it's, it just makes it even, you know, even more in line with, with uh field of dreams. There's a lot of things I love about this movie. First off casting Ewan McGregor as a young Albert Finney. I felt like that was very inspired. Yes. Yes. It um, is. Oh my I, God. I, that I, really is shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was, he was perfect. And yeah. it, it was, it was one of the few times that I felt like Burton's style skewed sort of lighter like we always talk about Burton as like a darker filmmaker very like emo but like a lot of the film is very still has some of his quirks but is very like warm and it's very like because it's all it's told through uh these rose colored glasses that Ah, um Albert Finney's character has looking back on his life so it's very dreamlike um I always respect when when an actor walks away from their career especially because of family but you know, seeing this movie, as soon as you watch it, you got you got to let me know because Alison Lohman is also sort of a vision in this movie, and she didn't get a lot of chances to like be in the spotlight, but she's she's incredible as as a young Jessica Lange. Oh, uh, oh, that could be interesting. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean the one thing you can, I mean, as much as, I mean, I will still defend some later um, Tim Burton's um, not Planet of the Apes. No one can defend his Planet yeah. of the Apes. <laughs> Mark does, Wahlberg doesn't defend that. No. Well, he doesn't defend a lot of his movies, which he should, except for Planet <laughs> yeah. of the Apes. He had everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, stop just saying Boogie Nights. That movie's a masterpiece. Um, it is in one of the most credible movies of all time. Mm-hmm. It is... Um, casting is never one of them. And he Tim, because Tim Burton's Tim Burton, he can usually get the people in the right kind of places. And um, I love the fact that Ewan McGregor for a while was the person you cast as the younger kind of iconic 
actor, um, as yeah. we'll get into with another another movie. Yeah. Um, but well, we won't. But he might come up in general conversation about the thing. Yeah. So he's just really good at casting, and I do like Alison Lohman's um, thing on screen. Like I really love her in Sam Raimi's. Drag me to hell. Thank you. Drag me to hell. I think she's really good in that. Because I think there is a fine line to the argument of is she a good person or not, which I think the movie is constantly asking as well. Like, yeah. um, is she actually a good person? She was forced to make a decision, but did she have to make that decision? Everything she does after is just reaffirming or is this just like a person caught in crisis, which I think is the genius of that movie, except but apart from everything else that's happening. So um, I know I've needed to check this out for a while because yeah. – there is something, even in Tim Burton's most emo of emo movies, as you were describing it, all I could think was Edward Scissorhands, and that even the happy, shiny stuff is, feels more dangerous than the mm-hmm. emo Vincent Price world that you kind of want to go back to. There's always kind of this whimsicalness nature about the whole thing. Beetlejuice, yeah. even the original Batman, um, I think, have a whimsy to them. That, yeah, that is think that, behind the, the gothic emo facade. Yeah, Big Fish was definitely sort of the last the last sort of glimpse of that sort of whimsy, I feel like, in a way that wasn't lost in the Uncanny Valley. So yes. I, I I really, I can't recommend it enough. Um, Tim Burton doesn't really talk a lot about his experience with his, his parents or his father, but in this particular film, I feel like you see a little bit of that because both he and John August have like talked in interviews in the past about basically they, they lost, you know, they didn't have great relationships with their fathers or they, you know, they were, you know, lost them at an early age. And so they didn't have a chance to reconcile. And so this, this sort of like touches on those themes from a very personal level, I think for both the writer and the director. Yeah, because I always got the sense with Tim Burton that he was always, and maybe because he got too successful and now he's like, well, I don't have those issues anymore, but he was always the weird kid. He was trying to work through his weirdness. Like he was the kid who liked Vincent Price. He was the kid who wanted to make Frankenweed. He was the kid that liked um, classic horror movies. Um, And maybe growing up somewhere very sunny, he's like, I don't fit in. And it's that and maybe yeah so no i basically more of the story i need to go with big fish today that is um no that is absolutely that is that's absolutely perfect okay so for my second trailer i made sure there was something i could play because i was like okay technically this is a pbs documentary but after watching um field of dreams all i wanted to do was go watch a ken burns documentary the great chronicler of americanisms um, so yeah, I'm playing the TV trailer spot for his um, very long baseball series. It is played everywhere. You can play baseball anywhere. In parks and playgrounds, in back alleys and farmers' fields, by small boys and old men. It's a game where the emphasis is put on a single individual. It is a haunted game in which every player is measured against the ghosts of all who had gone before. No one got to the major leagues on natural gifts. Most of all, it is about time and timelessness. Turner Home Entertainment and PBS Home Video proudly present nine innings of the great American pastime. You give me Babe Ruth over any king who's ever sat on the throne, and I'll be happy with that trade. Ken Burns, Baseball. 
this is where I first learned about the Black Sox. This is where I first, because I don't, I grew up in a very, considering how Australia is sports mad, I'm surprised we don't have as many sports movies, say, as like America has. We tend to want to live in the wasteland more than anything else and not, um, and sport is maybe just something else. But baseball is always, well, I don't even understand um, uh, AFL, which is our footy rules um, sport. The, there's a grand final coming up. I couldn't even tell you how the, anyway, I, I, I'm not a sports person. So sports movies can be a little bit foreign to me. And watching <laughs> um, Ken Burns's documentary on baseball, it was very much about how people, well, a nation can tie, which someone who comes from a country that's main religion is the All Blacks for rugby union, um, how a country can kind of put all their identity into a game and how it becomes mm -hmm. so important and so iconic that it kind of rises and falls with society, um, like Jackie Robinson or um, the Black Sox or kind of how all these kind of different kind of things. I can't remember if he touches on, I can't, don't think he touches on the... Um, doping scandal because I think it was a little bit after but he does all these kind of things and because it's mm -hmm. Ken Burns and you have these very melodic people kind of telling their stories and very midwestern accents and this kind of very gentle way of telling the story with kind of photos and and everything it's all I could think of after watching Field of Dreams so I'm yeah. so glad you picked that. I was actually thinking about something like that and I was like wait I wonder if Lindsay's going to be okay with like a documentary because I had like thought about picking something like the Ken Burns doc uh, because it, I think it's perfect uh, pairing with something like Field of Dreams, because it, it gives you some of the homework, especially if you're not uh, a big um, baseball fan or big sports fan. Um, that was one of the the things I was curious about going into this conversation was like, what's the perspective and or I guess loss of perspective from an international or uh, a non-American uh, viewing of something like Field of Dreams, which is so like intrinsically American and it's sort of in, in the, the fabric of like, I, even when James Earl Jones is talking about, you know, he's talking about uh, baseball and and its role in, in American culture and how it's grown and changed. And even with these, uh, you know, the the rise and fall of, a, of our, our country, it, it's, it's something that I'm like, is that lost or is that, is that still, um, resonate you know from from your perspective i think it does resonate but it's just not with baseball it would be a complete if uh, say someone from europe was watching this i assume they would align more with um soccer or football i apologize mm -hmm. <laughs> um i keep getting a football I'm like already oh, have a football in australia can we have <laughs> i can't i can't do more than one football um uh soccer uh, because that is the beautiful game and that is um kind of that would be how they would see it. From some way, someone who's from more the southern part of the world, it would be more rugby or it would be, um, again, soccer, but it would be, um, yeah, more rugby or soccer or even cricket. It's, yeah. you still get, I mean, humans are very attracted to sport in terms of how it moves, how it feels. It's something that you would, um, again, watch with your father, your father would take you to games or your parent would take you to games. It would something you'd, yeah, it's got that kind of thing that kind of rises and falls with society and how you relate to it. It just, baseball is such a specific sport to America that you cannot watch this movie and go, 
it is the most, this is, Fulfill the Dreams is the most American movie ever made. I have just created something totally illogical. That's what I like about it. Good yeah. argument for it. Yeah. Yeah, very good argument. There's, there are others. There are others that you could definitely say, well, this is obviously the, the one, but I think Field, Field of Dreams is in the conversation because, and I think that's what the movie is ultimately about because America just doesn't have baseball. I mean, it also loves football, it also loves basketball, but it sort of depends on the kind of culture of America that you're talking about. Baseball is more Midwestern, I want to say. Is that? I would, say, or, I would yeah. say so. I mean, at this point, at this point in America, it's so prevalent. Like, I think baseball is sort of like a, it's a national sport, but I think the spirit of it, especially in this film is captured in the Midwest because it's sort of that salt of the earth, you know, the, the, you know, the middle America, I think is really uh, what you're seeing and what's being reflected in this film. Uh, yes. which, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I put on my notes, I don't think I've seen something more American than making a baseball field in the middle of a cornfield. That just yeah. seems so <laughs> American to me. I mean, I'm surprised. Um, not me winning him. She's actually in The Wall, which I think is kind of funny because his wife is actually played by Amy Madigan. And to me, that kind of looked like this, almost the same person. Um, yeah. though, <laughs> um, though Amy Madigan, um, I'm sorry she didn't come out with an apple pie, but she is not that kind of wife which oh, I, no, no. I love her performance in this um yeah. because sometimes the wife character grates on me because she's even she's often the disapproving wife yeah. and amy is not she is far more interested in um her own things um yeah. she's kind of the realist as it okay we might have to sell the farm what you've done may have cost us like our home with this with this football field but once she sees it and once she kind of understands his vision she's like yeah you you just drive to Boston at the worst possible time. Yeah, you do that. <laughs> Very supportive wife, I will say. I'm like, maybe yeah. she should be slightly more disapproving, but yeah. um, your husband's going crazy. But um, no, I do love Amy Madigan's performance in that. She is so good. One thing I'm I'm fascinated with about Field of Dreams is sort of where this came out, like when this came out, because uh, it came out in 1989. And I think there's like, a really a really fascinating conversation around 1989 because we always talk about like these really like big movie years and this obviously 1990 yeah. yeah 1999 is the one that always comes out 
but this is one that I think has a really strong case as well because it's sort of inaugurating this modern era for movies. We're going into the 90s, uh, populist movies, independent film is just sort of starting to emerge. Um, it has an even stronger monoculture than the 90s, so I feel like that's where something like Field of Dreams could like pop if it's even slightly successful. Uh, but we, you know, look at that that summer, it's like Back to the Future 2, Ghostbusters 2, Lethal Weapon 2, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's sort of the dawn of the modern blockbuster with Batman. Yes. Uh, the beginning of the Disney Renaissance with the Little, little Mermaid. Little Mermaid. I just saw this and one, then, yeah. And then you have like these big directors who are having their like little, they're, they're all like popping. So like Spike Lee has Do the Right Thing. Uh, Gus Van Sant has Drugstore Cowboy. Cameron Crowe has Say Anything. Soderbergh has Sex, Lies, and Videotape. So, you know, we... It's just all coming together and and quietly amongst all of this sort of box office booming, you have this little movie called Field of Dreams that comes out and it just like makes, I mean, I know Kevin Costner was kind of already a movie star, but it just takes him to that like next level, like beyond that. Um, because, and, and I think it's just gotten more with the years going by. I don't think it was the sensation that it it is now then. Um, I mean, it was a successful film, but now it's talked about as, you know, one of the great baseball movies of all time. And it's not even entirely about baseball. Yeah. Also, didn't the, yeah, this is true. This is the big thing. It's not exactly about baseball because the first time I saw this was actually in 2020 when I couldn't go anywhere and I just wanted comfort. Um, mm -hmm. I also watched Kevin Costner's football movie about what that's mm -hmm. called. Uh, draft day draft day i still don't can't tell you what that movie's about because i do not understand what drafting is <laughs> i like the movie though um yeah. but no it's and so i think i watched bill durham i watched um just a few other just kind of sport movies that just like especially baseball because they found very very comforting for some weird reason and bill durham's not exactly about baseball either which is what i that's probably my favorite one i think yeah. kevin costa's never His... been sexier in that movie i think it's yeah <laughs> his his trifecta is uh bull durham Field of Dreams and uh, the lesser love, one is for love the, love the game. game, the, love of the, yeah, game, the yeah. Sam, Sam Raimi. Um, but yeah, this was just, you know, the, I think most, most of the best sports movies encapsulate this sort of bigger theme outside of the actual sport uh, being played. So like Rudy and the natural and the wrestler, these are all things where it's like the sport is just sort of like the sheen, but here it's the gateway into the relationship between the father and the son that needs to be repaired and exactly that yeah that that stuck with me you know it's like love loss and memories i mean it, it gets criticized for being trite and being overly sentimental which it may be guilty of in some places <laughs> oh yeah but then you have Bert, um but lancaster coming up and then all is forgiven i the, yeah. the casting of this movie is kind of genius and i kind of forgot that james Earl jones is in this movie <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> being amazing yeah. um which kind of works for this double um exactly i was gonna say i didn't even realize till i didn't think about till after i watched this the other day that i was like wow we picked this awesome double feature with james Earl jones in both movies doing very different things very different things i mean completely yeah. um though he does also try to kill the main protagonist in both movies so True. <laughs> yeah um no it is it is can be it is a very sentimental movie but i don't think it is unapologetically that. I mean, mm -hmm. me going back to Amy Madigan again, but that scene when she's at the PCA meeting and you're just watching that going, oh, wow, so America's just always just trying to ban books. This is just something, okay, that's cool. 
Um, right, right. And they're talking about I mean, this author. Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, no. I, I was just going to say, I, I think where the success lies, like you're saying, is the movie is never like, the movie never like looks at you and winks. It's like yes. always like hard on its sleeve, deep, deep earnestness. And it's like either you're on board with this or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Amy and... Madigan walks into a room and goes, how great is the American Constitution? How great is America? And gets right. everyone on her side. If that right. isn't hard on sleeve, um, I'm going to just love everything about, everyone is going to love something in this movie un- unapologetically to the point of silliness. Um, and yeah, you are either on board or you're not. That is yeah. That yeah. is what this movie is. This movie is so unpretentious in its sentimentality that you just have to go, yeah, I can't run to play catch with my dad now. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. It's true. Now, talking about that sort of uh, sentimentality and and my bias towards the movie, I now that you've you shared that you just watched this for the first time a couple of years ago, um, this movie, the reason why I picked this in this double and why I wanted to talk about this, is this is the movie that most reminds me of my dad, because as far back as I can remember, uh, this was a movie that captured his love of the game and like my love for movies, because my dad's a sports guy, like through and through, especially baseball, lifelong LA Dodgers fan, um, encyclopedic knowledge of the game, you know, the players, you can ask him about any World Series, any game. Um, I became a fan of of the sport and the team uh, by proximity to him, but in no way even close to the level that, that he is. And so... You know, it's like I was always a a movie guy. So, you know, I follow directors and actors and genres and things like that. And so this film was where our paths crossed um, when I was very young and they just stayed connected through the decades. And so, uh, you know, we've seen countless movies together. Like I was saying earlier, I dragged my my dad to so many movies. I'm sure he had no desire to see uh, growing up, but, you know, he was he was a a dad. So he's like, I'm going to do this for my son. Oh, and, I did that with Little Mermaid. And I don't think yeah. <laughs> he actually wanted to see that with Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin, but he had a young child and that is what we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but, but so through time, this has become our movie. And yeah, a few years ago, I think during the pandemic, we started uh, a tr- tradition where we'll watch it on Father's Day and that's been it for us. So that's our, that's our tradition. That's how I kind of came to this movie at a young age. I didn't see this in the theaters, but I think, one of these, uh, one of those years, a few years after it came out, I think he had gotten the VHS and he's like, Hey, you know, we need to, I need to show you this movie. You're, I think he realized, you know, movies were the way to my heart when yes. it came to, to sports. And so he was like, I'm going to get you into this by showing you my favorite sports movie. And that's how it happened. Well, funnily enough, the movie that reminded me more of my dad will be Star Wars. Not that he, became a, a Sith Lord, but it that is how I tie him, which he'd be very surprised hey, about, I think, now looking back. Good stuff. Yeah, but so, yeah, my dad is also mad about sport, but he will watch any sport. Like it's I mean, yes, he loves he has his favorites. I was in New Zealand when the rugby world cup was starting. New Zealand lost to France, which I forgot what happens when All Blacks lose a game in my home country. That just goes very <laughs> sad. Um, but I just remember this comment. They were just talking about the main kind of games of the weekend with my brother-in-law. And he goes, oh, there's no more sport now. And dad goes, no, 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 there's sport. There's like the other Rugby World Cup games. There's mum goes, yeah, we're going to watch the yachting. I'm like, you guys watch yacht? I'm like, no, he's always watched any sport that was on TV. My father would watch. It just he would he is the guy who would get up at three in the morning to watch a a sport game 
Um, I have memories yeah. of being woken up in the middle of the night by him cheering because he had to get up at three in the morning to watch a, a game. And I'm going, God, oh, dad's watching a game. Okay, go back to sleep. So um, my father also has a sports fan. All sports, doesn't matter what it is. He yeah. will watch gridiron. He will watch baseball. He will watch um, Aussie. He will just watch anything. As long as two teams duking it out, he will he will watch. Yeah. So, Lindsay, were you a, I'm guessing, because I think you're you're a Prince of Thieves fan, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, I am. Okay. I'm glad. I'm glad we're on the same team there. Were you like a big Costner fan growing up? I was. I really was. Um, I know my dad took me to see me far too young, because that movie's like four hours. So I don't know how I sat through Dances with Wolves, but because yeah. it won, <laughs> my father wanted to go see the movie that won the best picture. Um, so yeah. I got even Sons of the Lions, which I think my father regretted. Um, but yeah, so I was a definite Costa fan and I find him yeah. such a fascinating movie star. Um, yeah. When you mentioned the movie The War, I think it kind of threw a wrench into my theory. But I think definitely for a time he was America's movie star, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. was I was going to ask you about this because of the sort of like America, New Zealand thing. Uh, I was born and raised the Costner guy because like, ever you know you ever have those actors uh, that your parents have watched for so long and mm. for so much that they inherently become part of your cinematic taste yes yeah that was that was sort of like that for me i'm i'm interested to know uh sort of your take because for american baby boomers like where my parents were in the late 80s early 90s i think costner found this very specific sweet spot and then he tapped into it as far as like his audience, like oh, he made yeah. his mark at the last possible time when I think a movie star like him, he could kind of rise to uh, prominence. Cause you look at his filmography from like 1985 to 2000 and it's this cross section of Westerns, baseball, history, and crime. And it's just like catnip for baby boomers. It is because he was coming. It's kind of interesting because in the early eighties, it was, not they were taking it, but it was the Royd um, movie star. Or they were muscled yeah. up. It was the Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger's, it was the Sylvester Stallone's, it was the Van Damme's. It was kind of that big, bulky. I mean, I think Die Hard kind of turns Bruce Willis into, even though he looks like everyone's dad almost, in, in, yeah. even though that's not John McClane, but he does have that same thing. So I think in the late 80s, they kind of toned it down a bit, but that's when Kevin Costner was able to go up. And it is kept up to a baby boomer because it is all the movies that you said. It's that ultimate... He's not even. I get. He's not even a Midwest boy. He's born and raised in California, which I think is yeah. hilarious. He was born um, in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not a Midwest kid, but he he became the Midwest um, movie star. I mean, yeah, all those things you said. That was the sweet spot of. He lived in this very specific nostalgia of Americanism. Yeah. I mean, Field the Dreams might be the ultimate, but Untouchables is definitely that. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dances with Wolves is absolutely that that is yeah kind of like like looking at after that jfk you yes. know a perfect world wider you know all these things are just like running in that same sort of vein and he's really like i would say on and he's he's vacillating between them because after he does the war he does water world and my theory about water world is that you know, he was still a movie star that could get headlined where like people go to see the movie because that person's in it, not Which because of what world. the movie is. And so th I think that's how it worked. And I, as if anyone that knows me from online knows that I love Waterworld and I'll defend it to the death. Um, but I realized that that was him sort of reacting to 
the T2 and the yes. Jurassic Park and the, okay, there's, there's these things that are happening in cinema that I need to catch up with. And I, it's not enough for me to just be, you know, Kevin Costner in a period film or a Western anymore. I need to catch up and create something that is at that level of blockbuster. And that's what he did. Yes, which even though I will defend Waterworld to the death, um, I did not in 1992. When did Waterworld come out? Uh, 95. 95. I was not that defender in 95. I thought that movie was weird. I thought it was overblown <laughs> and I didn't kind of risk it. Just appreciate the fact that what's sets on water. Just can we just appreciate that? No, I was yeah. a snarky 13, 14 year old. Um, oh, I was I was wondering if if the the idea was also there was resentment because it was ripping off uh, George Miller, but I was not quite there yet in my movie knowledge. Now there is, okay. yeah, but now I, I that was me when I was nineteen and I was still just seeing Waterworld. I was like, just a rip off of George Miller, and now I'm just like, yeah. George Miller on water. What what else, what what is there not to love? Yeah, um, what's not to love? What's not to love? So yeah, I've gone yeah. on kind of as you can see, I've gone on a journey with Kevin Costner. I think yeah. in my snarky teens and early twenties. I went off him and now I'm coming back to him because I'm older and maybe coming more of a boomer. I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> but um, I think I'm a boomer for the nineties. Let's, let's really be honest, but it's kind right. of, I'm right there with you. I'm yeah. Right like the boomers you. are back for the sixties. I'm, I'm back for the nineties, yeah. but it is um, this thing where I think, yeah, he thought he saw T2, he saw Arnold coming back and went, uh Oh, okay. I need to keep up. And, I think in 95, I don't think he jived or he was kind of compatible with something like Waterworld. Definitely not with a postman. Like, I'm not quite there with the postman yet. I may come there with the postman because I think that movie's weird as all hell. Um, but I think because Kevin Costner also has a very specific kind of ego, and I don't think yeah. he could have let something like T2 just lie. Um, yeah. And, and the he, thing is, is also, yeah. if you look at, if you look at Waterworld and the Postman, these are also, they're post-apocalyptic, but they're post-apocalyptic Westerns. Yes. And in their DNA, it's still a Western, which I think was his comfort zone, was and, Westerns and his, historical films and then like sports movies. And so that's why after Waterworld, you know, he's licking his wounds and he goes back and does Tin Cup. Yes. He, he's, you know, back in, in the pocket. And then after the postman, he comes back and he does for the love of the game. And so he realizes this is where I need to do this. And I, I like that you brought up the other, you know, the action stars of the eighties, because I feel like he really was the answer to the Joel Silver action hero, um, where he's, he's not shredded enough to be Rambo and he's not and he, and he's too self-serious to be John McClane. He is. So I really think, and this is my personal theory, that Costner saw himself as like the heir to Clint Eastwood. Absolutely. I have seen his, um, oh, not Wyoming, his That's Yellowstone, his Western, he did wider. Yeah. And that yeah. movie is Clint Eastwood all over. It is a bit more bloated, I would say, than a Clint Eastwood movie because Clint right. Eastwood famously yeah. very to the point um yeah with his and movies. unfortunately it, it has the it has the disadvantage of being linked to tombstone forever Which and ever you don't want to be linked i mean yeah <laughs> i would like to be linked to tombstone because that movie's awesome but yeah. it's kind of again i think what people wanted from a western in 92 it yeah. was a, it was a little later than that but yeah you you don't want to be linked to it in that way where you are the lesser of the two of the you know Armageddon and Deep Impact or a Bug's Life and Ants. You want that's, to be yes. the one that's on top. So and exactly, I think, yeah. I think so well, when 
Tombstone was made, I think that's what people wanted. They wanted the Kurt Russell-esque intensity of it was, um, that's what they wanted from a Western. And I think because Kevin Costner, for better or worse, is always going to be your dad's movie star, which I think in the 80s was perfect. I think, and even some people went, yeah, no, I love The Sister. I love, I mean, Untouchables is still one of the greatest movies ever made. I mean, that's just kind of this platonic, oh, Brian De Palma made a blockbuster and it's perfect. You just watch this movie and it's fantastic. I mean, Dances with Wolves is this magnum opus of complete, um, he was getting away with something with Dances with Wolves, I think, and got rewarded for it royally, um, which I don't think he ever did again after that. Yeah. But no, he's a fascinating one that he kind of, it, there was a quick change and everyone went back to these big action movies. I mean, James Cameron does not make westerns. He is kind of one of those, he's just not interested in, in westerns. Even right. um, something like Avatar doesn't have a western bone in its body. And that is kind of what people wanted. It's just what people kind of wanted at a very specific time. And Kevin, and Kevin Costner had a very specific heyday from 85 with Silverado up to um, Waterworld in 95. And that's when the things, even though you you can go back to those um those things and and realize oh actually Waterworld's really great and all these other things are really great I'm appreciating them but I just don't think they were as appreciated at the time as say he wanted right. things to be appreciated like the bodyguard which I still think yeah, has the cause... weirdest ending of all time but that is what I already discussed that on that episode <laughs> yeah I mean even his flops are interesting and yeah. the one thing you see consistently across the decade is that you know these are all films that you know whether high concept or simple premise they're sold off the strength of his name, which yes. is still, I mean, you, you don't have movies, many movie stars like that anymore, where it's just like, they're in it. I'm going to see it. And Costner was just one of those guys. And and I love the way that you said that he's, you know, the most American movie star, because I, I think it's just something he represented a type of, I, I, I always describe it as like blue jeans and light beer, American masculinity. And a regular Joe sort of staring off into the horizon. And at some point, that was just the biggest thing in Hollywood. And somehow he latched onto it and, you know, ran with it for a decade and was like the top of everything. So, well, no, I mean, yeah. he's he's back on top with a show that is the most American show on TV. Right. And that is Yellowstone. And the weird thing is his movies don't always translate outside of America, which I think this is why he's the ultimate um, American movie star, because mm-hmm. Bill Dreams is about baseball which is a very American sport. Um, I think it, it, Prince of Thieves, he does, um, it does turn out because it is Robin Hood. And that is kind of where I found mm-hmm. my thing for Kevin Costner was watching Prince of Thieves because that movie rules. All this sort of kind of thing. But yeah, Draft Day, I was watching it going, yeah, I have no idea what's happening in this at all. But I'm enjoying the fact that Kevin Costner's on screen with a few other people, Jennifer Garner, all being charismatic. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to carry me through. But I have no idea what's going on in that movie. And I think he's such, so he touches on something very specific that it can be sometimes hard to, um, to kind of grasp exactly what he's going into, except with say field or dreams where you're like, Oh no, it's um, yes. It may be about the black socks, but it's really about his dad. And that is the thing that's universal about it. Um, And I think, I think that speaks more to the direction of um, uh, Phil Eldon Robinson than it does to yeah. Kevin Costner, if that makes sense. Yes, and we almost didn't get Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner. I don't know if you were aware of this, but we actually have Tony Scott 
to thank for Costner even doing Field of Dreams because he was lined up to do Revenge and Revenge kept getting delayed yes, over and over and over. Yeah. And he won and he got the the field of dreams script and was like wow this this would be great i'd love to do this but they it's an amazing script uh, yeah they, they anyone wanted, reading that going yeah i want to do this <laughs> yeah and he, he wanted to do it and he's like no i've i'm i'm tied into revenge and then he told he finally told uh scott he's like hey i'm gonna do this movie because yours isn't ready and tony says okay i get you in four months go to go to iowa and then we're off to the races and then that's how it happened it's funny because if Costner hadn't done it, the studio wanted Robin Williams to play Ray Kinsella, which is a very different movie. Very different and, movies, but I think he could have done it. Yeah, I, I think yeah. he could have done it. Phil Alden Robinson, he said he did. He wanted Costner because he looked like, he, he, he said he wanted a guy who didn't look like he could hear the voices. And Robin Williams looked like a guy that would just be like, of course he hears voices. You know? And so that's why uh, Ray Kinsella ends up being, you know, the guy that Costner, um, the, uh, Alden Robinson fought to put Costner in that role. So that actually that was makes really a interesting. lot of sense. You look at Robin Williams and go, yeah, well, of course he's going to hear the voices. Kevin Costner's like, mm, no, this guy's not going to be hearing ghost voices from a cornfield. That is, that is not no. going to happen. I my favorite thing about the movie is that how everyone is so accepting of the ghosts once they see them. They're like, oh yeah, baseball ghosts, cool. Yeah. It's never um a moment of what's that? Even um uh Busfield, uh what's his name? Um uh, Timothy Busfield, yeah. Timothy Mark. Busfield. Yeah. Mark, once he sees the baseball players, he's like, Oh yeah, those baseball players. You can't sell the farm. Like it's Everyone is super accepting of the fact yeah. that all these famous um, baseball players have just uh, forced ghosts their way on to want to play baseball. It's yeah, for um, yeah, for the movie to work, you have to take you have to take yourself into that realm of the magical realism. Like there's you do. You, you cannot be like, well, wait, why is that happening? And why is this happening? You just have to accept that this is all happening, even though it's very bizarre. The film does not care about being realistic. Oh no! But it's but it's it's incredible because it's just a modern fairy tale, you know. Well, it's a yeah, favorite. I mean, most movies would have that moment of Amy Madigan staring open mouthed at the field, going, "What the hell is happening? Why is my husband?" There would be a few scenes of that, but because, as you said, Alden Robinson has no interest in doing that. He just wants you to accept the magic of it and move yeah. forward pretty quickly, which I think is a really smart yeah. decision. I've just seen too many movies where I've seen the wife open mouths going, what? Yeah. And I love how that never happens. It goes to a point of not doing that, which they just look out the window, see Shoeless Joe, and then it's just, yep, we're doing this. Yeah. I One of the things that I, I did not really know much about prior to going back and watching again and kind of looking into the stories behind this was that, A, it's based on a book by W.P. Kinsella, uh, the guy who's the main character is named after called Shoeless Joe. Mm -hmm. And this book uh, came out in 1982. And at some point, Phil Alden Robinson, who um, is sort of a curiosity as a filmmaker, because he had a very short time in the in the spotlight and, you know, did a handful of movies. He did like a movie with Patrick Dempsey called In the Mood. And then after Feel the Dreams, he did Sneakers, which is one of Platonic. my favorite ensembles. The platonic you know. kind of movie of what a perfect movie is is what I would argue sneakers yeah. is. I it should not work. It does. I yeah, that movie's magical. <laughs> and it, the ensemble it's, is it's, I don't even know how to like 
how to have you ever done a double of sneakers before? With I have, yeah, it's mission the first mission impossible. It's oh, um, that's right. Okay. Yeah, it's it's I don't know how to explain when you tell what people sneakers is about, it sounds dumb. When you watch sneakers, it's amazing, is the only way I, I can describe it. Yeah, the way I describe sneakers is like imagine Ocean's Eleven, but instead of as attractive as that cast is, they're at they're that much more charismatic. They have, they have all the, uh, the the currency of good looks that Oceans has. That's char- charisma in sneakers. Yeah, because so. that is the perfect word. Because uh, Dan Aykroyd, as much as I love these actors, um, okay, you got Robert Redford and Sydney Portier, but everyone else, uh, yeah. on my, yeah, and is kind of River Phoenix. Um, yeah, love Dan Aykroyd and Strethen, and I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> this is not, this is not. Um... <laughs> Yeah, that that is that is the perfect way to explain sneakers. Um, but yeah, I mean, like this is really his his big claim to fame. I also thought it's really funny that Phil Alden Robinson also wrote the movie Ghost Dad, which is a <laughs> a weird sort of like side note in our in our tangent about father movies. Nearly a trailer, by the way. <laughs> Didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> so. So yeah, but the the story about it is so awesome because Phil Alden Robinson read the book and is like, I have to make this into a movie. I have to do this and had the utmost reverence and respect for uh, W.P. Kinsella. So he stays up all night reading the book. He falls in love with the story and then he prepares this obsessively detailed letter to W.P. Kinsella, basically laying out why he wants to make this movie, uh, you know, this novel into the great American movie and all the things that just just went into his heart about this book and he sends this letter off to WP Kinsella. Some time passes and then out of nowhere, he gets a postcard in the mail, just a postcard uh, that's marked from WP Kinsella. And it says, do whatever you need to do to make the movie. And that was his like, his his sign of approval and it was just such a funny and and antiquated way yeah. to to sign off on it really, very really hits home. Dreams. Yeah, very, very filled dreams. It's it's a very cool image though of having a baseball field in the middle of a cornfield. There's yeah. something very yeah. cool about that, and to have the players emerge from the cornfield. Like I love the line toward the end when because I don't think Kevin Costner realizes why they're asking James Earl Jones to go with him. Um, right. Like I, it's kind of like that moment in um, the Ultimate Dad Issue movie, um, Third Encounters of the Close Encounters oh, of the Third yeah. Kind when he goes to the spaceship to go with them. But I don't think Kevin Costner in that moment is realizing that James Earl Jones is either already dead or he is going to die. I don't necessarily, it's, I, I don't think he realizes that part of it. And they never quite say it that this is what it is because all the players um, who are there, have have already died so i think there's a kind of a cool moment where he's like yeah but this is my co- i own this cornfield you're going into my cornfield yeah like he doesn't kind of realize what the cornfield represents um and it's and, the, and cool, i love yeah. that they don't answer that question they don't yeah. say okay yes you're going to heaven or they don't say anything explicitly in this movie they really yeah. leave it up to you to say i mean it's 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 really open to you as the audience to interpret okay this is what's happening you know, or you just, you don't have to ask the question, you know, yeah. I, I, I loved how you mentioned them coming out of the, the cornfield being 
a place being something tangible. There's something to be said for movies that are shot on locations and sort of create these landmarks that live on long after the box office success. I love the fact. It's still there. The baseball field is still there. You can go and play baseball on the field of drink. Yeah, According to yeah. what I read, it's still, it might not be. I mean, this might have been pre-COVID, it, but it. Oh, no, it's there. there. Yeah, it's there. It also yeah, makes it's me happy. there. And, and in 2021, two major league baseball uh, regular season games were played on the field of dreams. And it's just the most like, I don't know. It's, it's like the most like Rocky statue thing you can, you can think of um, the, at the game. The first one, Kevin Costner participated in the opening ceremony where he just sort of like walks out onto the, the field and he's like walking around. It's like, it's like performance art or something. And everyone's like dead silent. They're playing the James Horner score like over the loudspeakers. And he just kind of walks out and it's looking around. Um, and then slowly the players start to like make the field, but they're coming out of the cornfield. So yes. it's very much like, oh, like what is happening right now? My living real life. This is very strange, but it's again, one of those things that because it's so like tapped into like the, Americana of it all. Everyone's very respectful of this very bizarre thing that's happening at a, at a national sporting event because oh, no. of how this movie resonates with people. It is. I mean, it is, it goes in, it's not necessarily a sports movie, but it's more about why you love the sport to begin with. It's not, um, I would say something like major league is about the game. It is about like a team and how they interact and the actual playing of of, uh, of the game build of dreams is which also by the way came out in 89 um it's it, field of dreams is about why people love baseball or love a sport to begin with it is the yeah. history it is the people the people you find connection with um the fact that kinsella finds um such a relation has such a relationship with his favorite author who is Terrence Mann played by James Earl Jones uh, but also Shoeless Joe Jackson um because his father liked Shoeless Joe Jackson and Shoeless Joe Jackson has a hell of a story when it comes to sport the fact mm -hmm. that he was part of the eight Black Sox but they never proved well I mean he took the money it's just he never could they could never see how he threw a game I think was the yeah they like they didn't actually prove it and that it was you know, yeah, it was all tied into this 1919 Black Sox scandal, um, which gives us a little bit. Of, it's it's interesting the way it ties back into his relationship with his dad, yeah. because as we learn later in the in the movie, um, he tells his dad, you know, I could never respect a man whose hero is a criminal. And then he never has the chance to reconcile with the man. Like, that's the last thing he really you know, said to him. So he has to. Yeah, said he to has him. To he has to reconcile with Shoeless Joe Jackson. But as you look into, this is why you should watch the Ken Burns documentary and also John Sayles' amazing Eight Men Out. Yes, is, yes. I, which was almost a trailer, but I went with um, the Ken Burns, which is an amazing story about the Black Sox kind of yeah. scandal. And yeah. it really looks into the how the fact that how little the mm -hmm. players were being paid, how, um, I mean, it's kind of a really, you could really double it with something like Air that came out last year or this, the, this yeah, year last year um about how players players rights essentially because the whole crux with air is mm -hmm. um spoilers that michael jordan is the first player to get a cut of sports merchandise which mm -hmm. he it, it, it without everything else he's done he still makes billions of dollars off air jordans yeah and it's very much about um him 
becoming who he is because of the Air Jordans as well as his talent, but it's very much about how money is made off sport. And this mm-hmm. is Eight Men Out is also very much about how money is made off sport and how the players got nothing. And so when they were offered to throw get money from gamblers or bookies to throw the game, they took it. And it is very much on the player side. It's a great movie. It's got one of those amazing 1988 casts in it where you're just looking yeah. at it going, holy hell, they got all these guys in a room and now they're in a movie. And just like a, and yeah, the Eight Men Out, perfect, perfect pairing to watch with us as well. And I, mm, I think yes. that would give someone a really good like narrative way to get the the background on the 1919 Black Sox scandal as well. Um, uh, one thing coming into the beginning of this movie that I was like, okay, I got to bring this up to Lindsay is the James Horner score. Now, yeah, there are very few scores that just sitting and listening to might bring me to tears, but this this might be one of them just because Warner it's so intense. Horner has a habit of that for me, though. Yeah. <laughs> there's more than one James Horner score. Well, I will start tearing up. Field of Dreams yeah. is one of them. Titanic is one of them. There's a few. Yeah, it's it's just such a subtle and somber beauty to what he does here. The studio, I mean, from from what I read, the studio wanted him to do something that was much more in line with like an American tale, like something grand, something big. And he was working on this and was like, no, no, no. This is a movie that's about emotions and like tapping in, into a very like atmospheric energy, like very like haunted, which which is really appropriate for this. So, yeah, that was that was one of the things that came out of, of this for me is just the focus on emotions and it's, it's effective because it was nominated for an Academy award um, lost the little mermaid, but uh, it still stands yeah, to this yeah. day. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it still stands up for me. as like one of his best scores in my opinion. So it, it lo- really it. is. I mean, this movie goes out of its way to be emotional, but never manipulatively mm-hmm. emotional, which I would argue American tale is manip- I And I say this as someone who loves American tale and will ball their eyes out. Um, mm-hmm. It's the first movie I remember absolutely just tears falling down my face was um, yeah. American Tale. And I, I thought no one talked about that movie and then the song showed up in Community and I was just the happiest person ever. But that's another thing. Um, but no, it, and the score adds to that. This movie is about emotion. It is about emotion you feel for other people, about people that you have loved in your life. Yeah. And that score kind of catches that ghostly, warm, beautiful kind of feeling to it and never – as we've said before, this is a movie that wears its heart on its sleeve, which is why I think Kevin Costner is perfect for it. I think he's a movie star who wears his emotion on his sleeve, very simply. He looks like a guy who's not going to hear the ghosts, and but hears the ghosts. But he's very... There's a weird emotional thing about a guy who's not used to showing his emotion that suddenly is about is having to now show his emotion. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think Kevin Costner is the perfect guy for that. I think Robin Williams something I mean yeah he could do dramatic roles he's one of the best at it but um and he knew not to be when to be Aladdin uh the genie from Aladdin or when he would be um what's his name from Google Hunting he knew exactly which tone to to take yeah but that's Kevin a guy Costner. who he expresses his emotion Kevin Costner you can tell is struggling yeah. with it which is why I think he works in this this movie he isn't the greatest actor ever but there's this sweet spot where you know, the simple sort of regular Joe, American guy, when he gets in his pocket, um, he's he's perfect. And it's yeah. uh, our our mutual friend, Preston Mitchell, he he commented to me one time. He said that he's a lot like Gary Cooper in that way. He and is, I think that actually. That's a, 
solid comparison, Gary yeah. Cooper. Because it did also take uh, me a while to warm up to Gary Cooper, as Preston also likes to remind me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, I I love that you brought up the um, the Ken Burns documentary as your trailer because the introduction in this movie reminds me a lot of that same sort of like Ken Burns energy. Like when we're seeing the old photos and video of Ray's family and getting sort of that background on his family. Um, it's sort of the kind of story that you would have like a guy like Ray would tell you while sitting around a table after, after dessert. Um, and it gives such good context for the way their family history intersects with American history. Cause we're talking about baseball and how um, it's traversed, uh, you know, American history. Um, just, you know, he's talking about his dad and the Vietnam war and counterculture and him going to Berkeley and, you know, baseball being uniquely tied to, you know, all the, the American mythos. So in this game that grows up with the nation, you know, seeing it, traced all these milestones in his life as well as um the country's history it was just you know it was like i felt like the perfect way to sort of start this movie off and tie it in and then the the thing that got me was the this quote at the end of that intro where he says i'm 36 years old i love my family i love baseball and i'm about to become a farmer but until i heard the voice i never did a crazy thing in my whole life this is true though i would say buying a farm is kind of crazy um, yeah. <laughs> that's something, okay. I don't have many quibbles apart from the fact that no one's surprised at the ghost and the fact that Kevin Costner is saying, I've never done anything crazy. You bought a farm. <laughs> Who buys a farm? Um, yeah. Farming's hard. Yeah. Like, it's not like, it's the hardest that, thing you can do. You know, that being said, I think at that point in time, okay, we're looking at like the 70s or something. I mean, that was like, I think that was like the the equivalent for some people of as like, you know, you got to go start your career. You got to do something. Yeah, and, this is true. You know, he's a guy who he said he majored in the 60s. So he doesn't have I a feel whole lot of experience. A, I, I feel that is a um, a director line. That is, that comes from Phil Alden Robinson. I, I feel oh. that he also graduated in the 60s. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then, you know, having it start out as a guy that just feels like he's kind of in over his head anyway. Yeah. It was, it was perfect to have him sort of like, okay, he's trying to manage his, his grown corn. And then he starts hearing voices. And I love, I just love that opening scene where he's like running around the cornfield and he runs out of camera and then back in. And he's like, did you hear that? Did you hear that? <laughs> I love when he's and in the store. Cause you know, you hear voices in the corn and everyone's just going, uh Oh, the new guy's cracking already. Like that is. Yeah. Yeah, most people go to therapy, but Ray builds a baseball field. Exactly. <laughs> Going back to the Ken Burns point, it's when they're talking about uh, Moonlight. Um, Moonlight Graham. Oh, Moonlight Graham. I was going to call him Johnson. That wasn't it. Moonlight Graham. And apparently what happened was, because they actually went to Minnesota to film that mm -hmm. section, which I love. They went to Boston to film Fenway. They went to actually Minnesota, where they didn't have to go to Minnesota um, to film the parts with Moonlight Graham. But they actually yeah. found people who knew him. So those stories they're talking about with the blue hat walking by the window, yeah. those are actual stories from people who knew the actual Moonlight Graham and the fact that he wanted to be a doctor. He was very happy with it because this is a guy who played mm -hmm. one inning at a baseball game, never did anything with it, and then was dropped. And then he went on with his his life, which um, will get goes into a bigger theme with with the movie. That felt so Ken Burns to me. I'm like, oh, this is what a Ken Burns documentary feels like. And then. I was like, oh man, I want to watch 
Ken Burns again because I went through a massive kick, which is why I watched um, baseball because yeah. a baseball documentary would not be something I would gravitate toward, but it was a Ken Burns. I think I just yeah. watched Jazz and Civil War and I was like, yeah, give me more 12-hour documentaries of, of, of Ken Burns. They're so comforting. Um, and it's got that same feel. It's just these homespun people telling the history of their community and how it ties in with the greater nation. And again, same with that opening, which um, feels very much a part of that. He's telling his story. He's telling the story of his father, how his mm-hmm. love is baseball. And yeah, he's like, I'm bit in 36, um, you know, and I've never done anything crazy except buy a farm. I still think that's a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and his main, and it's the fear that everyone has, I'm going to turn into my father. Yeah. I've done yeah. every single thing. <laughs> you may love your parents, um, but I'm, going to turn into my mother like that is just how it works it is the nature versus nurture that you even if you're adopted you are still going to turn into the person who raised you that because that is something that happens and that line is so relatable that you're like yeah we all turned into our parents at some stage whether we'd like it or not um and so it's that is such a relatable thing. So he's doing everything in his power not to become his father, but by the end of it, he's throwing catch with his father. And that is such yeah. a kind of this beautiful journey of kind of reconnecting with your parents, even if they have passed on. Yeah. The the scene that I think of when you talk about him becoming his father is um, there, there's a scene where he and Annie are talking in the bedroom at night and he's he's figuring out oh um i have to go you know ease his pain what does ease his pain mean whose pain Hmm. and and then they she gets she finally gives some like pushback on him right because Hmm. um up to this point annie is like like we were saying before a more uh, like a a more three-dimensional and a more like I don't know, like just the way they make her, it's like nothing like any other like wife character that we've, the the stereotype that gets like dropped into a lot of these movies, especially in the eighties where it's like, you're supposed to be supportive and know your role and all this stuff. And, and instead she has her own things going on. Yeah. She she has, you can see she has a life outside the house, outside their marriage. She's, she's involved with her daughter's school. She's got the way she kind of talks. She's her own person, which yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see in a 1989 movie. Yeah, but but she's she's not like an she's on his team. Like she believes yes. in him from the very get go, which is great. And she's by his side through the whole thing. Um, they depict them as this incredibly like just this copacetic couple. But she's also like they're not afi- afraid to make her a spitfire. She's like Amy Madigan is like just doing it here in this movie, and I I, I love every scene with her in it. She's she has this voice, and she's like a partner for him in a really pure, authentic way. Um, But yeah, just such a spitfire. And in this scene where they're in the room talking and she's finally giving him some pushback and saying like, listen, you saw the magic already. Like you, you don't have to do anything else to, to prove anything. Like you're not going to become, you're not going to become your father. And he's like, he's basically saying like, I never forgave him for getting old. He never did a spontaneous thing in his life. In all the years that I knew him, it's exactly the type of chance. Like, this is the thing that he's, you know, never seen his dad do. And so he wants to take that opportunity and take that jump and sort of chase his own white rabbit, if you will. Um, So it's like he's afraid that his future will be jeopardized if he just kind of like 
sits and lets it lets it roll and uh, that's what terrifies ray is like you know i don't want to become my dad not because of what he did but because of what he didn't do no that is absolutely um true and amazing so his dad well people sort of forget that when you become a parent you just can't go run off to boston to find your favorite author to take him to a baseball game you have responsibilities yeah. and i love how Amy Madigan is constantly reminding of him. Um, hey, this I know that you love this baseball field and I know it's special and I know um, because it's giving the players a second chance to play baseball, but we're not going to break, even break. We're going to lose money on yeah. this because if yeah. you're a farmer, every single part of land is to make to make money. It's the kind of, and I love how Timothy Busfield is such an asshole until he's not, which is why I loved him in the West Bank. Um, but... Yeah. In most relationships, like especially like if you've been with someone long enough, you've had a crazy idea that they've been like, you're insane, but I love you. I'm going to go with you on this, you know, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, putting your farm on the line. It could be something, you know, at a smaller scale than that, but it's still a crazy idea. And yeah. because they love you, they're like, okay, I'm going to be by your side on this. We're going to be, we're going to see where this goes. And she's that, but she's that also that little reminder of, okay, but this is the consequence of these actions and um which I, I i do love her performance i mean everyone is so good in this i mean yeah kevin colston feels awkward in it but that's on purpose because he needs to feel awkward he's kind of this guy who's trying to yeah. grapple with the fact that um but then you get Jane... yoda yeah oh my god there's this one moment <laughs> where he he looks so blue-eyed and white and innocent and there's this one moment where he does this ray Liotta laugh <laughs> Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, there he is. I love it. I love it so much because yeah. he is so yeah. good as Shoeless Joe Jackson, this kind of very sweet, very serious person who just loves playing baseball. And that was kind of, yeah. I think, when you get down to the tragedy of the Black Sox, is that he was a player who just generally loved playing the game. He happened mm-hmm. to be very good at it, but he just loved. Yeah. He just loved playing the game and it kind of sucks that he got screwed over from every single mm-hmm. which way side that he couldn't do it as a job anymore. Um, and they really capture that in that scene yeah. when he first comes out, when Ray's telling Karen, um, by the way, young Gabby Hoffman, I mean, I feel like nineties kids, like oh my Gabby gosh. Hoffman's a thing. She's, yeah. She's but, so uh, adorable in this. <laughs> when he's telling her about it and then she's just like, Oh, look, there's a man out on the field. And that whole scene, when he gets to, to go out there and actually you know, play some baseball with Shoeless Joe, the way that that Leota performs that and captures that is with such reverence. It's like he's walking into church. It's like he's... Well, throw your ball here. Like he's telling him off. Yeah. Like, and don't try and get cute. Yeah, and he's talking about, like, the the thrill of the grass and just, like, it's which with such reverence. And that, that line when he says, he says... Uh, don't we need a catcher? And he's like, not if you get it near the plate, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently that the whole part, the, the scene where, um, so, so when he's playing and he's thrown it to him, uh, Kevin, you know, he, he throws the ball. He says, let's see if you can hit my curve. Oh, that's so adorable. It's like, <laughs> yeah, then, I think he's going to start hit your curve. <laughs> and he, and he hits the bag and yeah. knocks Kevin over. And that was, that was all unplanned. That oh. was like a an outtake that they, yeah. but but Kevin just went with it and he says, "Yep, yep, hit my curve, you got it." <laughs> <laughs> it's so, it, yeah, that that scene alone. I mean, I just and and pointed to so many different things like that we would see Leota do later, like that he was he wasn't just 
you know, Goodfellas. He wasn't just unlawful entry. He could have like a, a withdrawn, a quiet performance and do it in this way. And, and that's that's one of those things that I'm just like, man, he, he nails it in this one. He does. He is so, so good. And I love when you get younger uh, Moonlight Graham. The whole movie is about second chances, but it's also about, it's very much about the American dream, but it's very much about when the American dream doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. Like having a farm for Ray isn't how it's exactly how it's going to go. I think it's right. Sorry. The Kevin Gosling character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. right. Oh, good. I got that right. Um, It is about how his father, his dreams never quite came to the way he probably wanted them. Um, Julius Joe Jackson did it definitely did not work out the way he wanted it to work out. Just mm-hmm. and the whole thing with Moonlight Graham is he's the character that just got into the big leagues, but then couldn't quite cut it. Like he didn't. Yeah, he kind of just to play part of one game, yeah. and then is. And I love the quote where he says, "He says we don't re- recognize life's most significant moments while they're happening." Back then, I thought, "Well, there will be another day." I didn't realize that that was the only day. Yeah. Doc Graham tells him that. And yeah, he's like, you know, you never know, but um, you never know if you're going to have another day. And so I think that's what ultimately is, is driving uh, Ray to do that is, is like, maybe this is my chance to get another day with my dad, but, but he doesn't even formulate that. I feel like he doesn't know until the end that that's what he's pursuing is yes. not it's not for the players, not for the these ghosts that are coming out of his cornfield, but it's for him. It's for his issues with his own dad. Which is why he has to stay. Like he can't yeah. follow in his dad's footsteps of dying early or getting old and dying yeah. and dying. He has to be in that in, in that moment to play catch with his yeah. dad. Again, being able to get that second chance. Um, but Ray Liotta, when he's coaching the kid, is because everyone's kind of making fun of him. He's you can tell he's not as good as everyone else in mm-hmm. that field. And just the way Ray goes, no, no, no. Okay, he's he's throwing this, this, and this. What do you think his next one's going to be? Like he's just gently, it, again, it's that reserved, beautiful, reverent kind of performance that he's giving. And then now I have to get into my favorite performance in the movie, and that is the legendary Burt Lancaster's when he's giving that whole spiel mm-hmm. about. And Kevin Costner's like going, but wouldn't that be devastating? You only got to play one part of one game. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, but then I wouldn't have become a doctor. I wouldn't have exactly. the life that I have. And exactly. his monologue in that Burt Lancaster way, when he's just walking on set and going, yeah, I'm Burt Lancaster. What are you going to do about it? And in his what, last uh, theatrical feature. Yeah. Also. And his last thing, he, 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 he knocks it out of the park. It's yep. such a beautiful performance. And he's just being Burt. There's no, it's, mm-hmm. um, and I've seen, Burt Lancaster give performances where he completely disappears into the character and all that kind of thing, but he's being Burt Lancaster. And I love it because he is just giving a masterclass on how you give a monologue. Yeah. Even something like James Earl Jones, who I think could do that now, though actually I still think Disney has him locked in a room saying every word in the dictionary. So they'll always have Darth Vader to, yeah. to roll out whenever they need to. Um, poor James Earl Jones, I'm very sorry, this that sucks. He's not, he is acting, he is giving, because I think people forget because he was the voice of Darth Vader, they forget how good an actor he is. That this is a man who commanded your time, respect. He often played the man with the gravitas. This performance, Mm -hmm. he gets to be messy. He gets to be kind of conflicted. He gets to swear. He gets to sort of be what it was like to have the responsibility of what you think 
a time period was. He wrote apparently the book mm-hmm. that defined the 60s. And he hates it because everyone thinks the book is the 60s and not actually what they were, what it was, I should say. And his performance is, especially when he's trying to kick Kevin Costner out of his house or his apartment, yeah. is perfection. Yeah. yeah. That Well, that's, that brings us to... I'll be with the you know, crowbar until you go away. <laughs> yeah, his character, Terrence Mann, when I was a kid watching this, it didn't it didn't always resonate to me like the purpose of that PTA meeting scene of like the the banning books and all that and then yeah. bringing bringing up Terrence Mann because I was like oh it's like who's Terrence Mann he's this fictional author but the the reason behind it is because in the original book Shoeless Joe the the writer is J D Salinger and so they couldn't use J D Salinger in the movie no. so what no, they had they to do not. is they had to they had to establish Terrence Mann's character and add context to, you know, who Mann was, you know, how he's perceived by society, especially conservatives about, you know, who object to his writing. And, and conservatives did not like um, exactly. J.D. Selinger at, at all. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so that's, that's what ends up, you know, landing us here. And I love the way, um, you know, th- that whole scene plays out and Annie like kind of slides out you know, when they're leaving, she slides out into the hallway and she's just like her inner protester has just like come back out. And she's like, yeah, it's just like the sixties. <laughs> and uh, it's funny because um, Alden Robinson later, like I end up reading an uh, uh, interview where he's talking about the two of them and how originally in the book, they are salt of the earth, like farmers uh, by, by upbringing and by, you know, through adulthood and they didn't go to Berkeley and they didn't march in protests and they didn't smoke weed and all this stuff. And he said, I wanted to explore, you know, for those who cut their teeth in the sixties and for those who, you know, thought they were groundbreaking and rule breaking and iconoclastic, how do they carry that into adulthood? How do they become like, you know, the rebels of their youth, but as adults and, and, and how would that look? And that's why he made them those characters, Annie and Ray with the, you know, getting together in Berkeley and then coming back to the heartland yes. and having to reconcile that. So I thought that was really interesting, but, um, but yeah, so then the, like the Terrence man of it all, I mean, I, th- I, it's, it's hard to imagine many other people playing this the way that James Earl Jones did. He is, he's, he has, like you're saying so much gravitas. Uh, Bill Alden Robinson wrote the part for James Earl Jones. He, he had it and had him in mind and he said he wanted him to be someone who was intimidating for Costner to approach and to try to to get him to come with you him. You can tell. You can tell that. I don't know if it was the first thing they shot together, but in that apartment, you can kind of see Costner yeah. like going, "Ah, oh, crap." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it just it it was it was perfect. I mean, I I I love hearing that. Like James Earl Jones says, his wife made like said, "You have to do this movie." because of the speech and the speech is going to sell you on everything. And, you know, he said, Oh, it was, it was really cool. It was, it was this sort of modern fairy tale, very whimsical and tapping into the nostalgia that we have for baseball as a country. But then you get to the speech and he said, the well, speeches always get cut out of movies. It's like, yeah. you know, you may like the speech in the script, but he's like, they're going to cut it out. I'm not going to get to say all that. And they left it in. And it's literally a one for the ages. I mean, I know some people may be like it's sappy or it's overly sentimental, but it's it's spiritual the way that James Earl Jones gives the speech at the end, the way 
Um, I just want to, I want to recite just part of it where he mm-hmm. says the one constant through all the years, Ray has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard rebuilt and erased again, but baseball has marked the time. This field, this game is a part of our past Ray. It reminds us of, reminds us of all that was once was good. And that could be good again. Oh, people will come rain. People will most definitely come. And it's just, yeah, it's like it's it's chef's kiss. The the you know the part when he's talking about people, you know, it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. Yes. The, the memories will be so thick that they have to brush it away from their faces. This is like spiritual. It is, and, and it's, I think yeah. that's how Alden Robinson saw the '60s. Like, I mean, even if you've seen Sneakers, there's this element of kind of the last vestige of what the 60s was which was the um uh, redford character he's like carrying on that protest spirit of what um they think of the 60s but that whole you will build it and they will come and yes this is probably because i've seen wayne's world 2 a thousand times it's got that woodstock feel and i was in my when i was 19 20 i was obsessed with woodstock i Wanted to know everything. Now, when you actually read the history of Woodstock, you realize it was an unorganized shit show, which 99 Woodstock makes so much more sense. Like, this thing got organized. I'm like, (laughs) oh, this is just with cameras and everyone knows what's actually happening. I mean, Woodstock wasn't exactly the most organized. I mean, the stage was falling apart. People just walked in. I mean, I mean, if we had cameras at 69 Woodstock, it would not be the... um, epitome of free love it would not be this kind of legend that it is today it'd be like ooh, yikes um people had to be airlifted out of this thing i mean this was not well organized but there's this sense of if you build it they will come they will come for the spirituality of this thing of this music we are playing or right. this game that we are going to be playing and that whole end shot of just seeing the rows of lights dry or are people yeah. just already just going the calling of the spirit of america which is baseball yeah. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful notion, and I absolutely love it. Again, it's sentimental, but it's not being. This is going to get them. It's just mm-hmm. pure emotion. That is what yeah. this is, and it's happy emotion, and that sometimes can be hard to accept in a movie when someone's just going, "This is happiness. This is who we are. This is pure. This is kind of the things that make you happy." Can be very hard to accept when you're watching a movie because it can feel separate. And I think it's very, needs to be deftly done because people can be very cynical and go, you're trying to manipulate me and I don't like this feeling. Um, but I, you never feel it once with Field of Dreams, ever. Yeah, and I, I love that James Earl Jones had the instinct and had the wisdom to know that this monologue did not need to be preached. No. His character, his character was going to be just say it straight, read it straight. Alden Robinson wanted this to be preached from the bleachers. He said he wanted a a baseball sermon that would echo through eternity and shake you to your core. And Jones is like, he's like, no, there's no way this author who is a a fan of all these players on this field is going to step up there and start, you know, orating to them. He's going to, he's going to say this with, you know, just earnestness and from his heart and he's he's, he's talking sitting, to Ray. he's gonna be he's gonna be sitting down while he says it it's not gonna be yeah. like a yeah yeah the words sell themselves and it's just yeah it's an ode to to the timeless power of baseball but it's 
it's an appeal to someone else. It's a personal appeal from from Terrence to Ray. And so that's why I think it it really works well. I love how everyone recognizes the players because I think you sort of mentioned that as well. How mm-hmm. like these are players that also um, even though he tries to deny it at the beginning, like he's like, that's a part of my life I can't go back to because I'm never going to be able to go back to. Yeah. But everyone recognizes um Shulish, uh the Ray Liotta Shulish character. Yeah, yeah, Shulish Joe. And it's kind of incredible that he the movie presents him as this mythical legend that everyone is kind of aware of. Like it's part of the founding fathers almost like is Sheila show Jackson. And I love that aspect of it, which is why everyone's kind of very calm, that there are ghosts playing on the, on the, on the field, but it's also got that notion of like, well, of course it's Sheila show Jackson. He's, he's kind of the American legend. He is part of Mm -hmm. who we are. So there he is. The only player I think is missing, but, but I think Jackie Robinson had a much more successful career ended up being, and I think he might've been alive at that time. I can't remember, but I would have, yeah, I think one yeah. of the this is one of the I guess one of the the flaws of the film and, and the one thing that I I remember hearing uh Robinson say that he regrets about the movie is not including players of color because you would yes. have had players of color who had who had been playing during that time and it's, not allowed it's not, to yeah. It wasn't just the eight men out and I think a, another film that did this really really well that at least addressed it in a way that was like Okay, we we can't devote an entire section of the film to this, but we're gonna we're gonna at least not be ignorant about this. Was a league of their own. Yes. When there's um there's a black woman in the audience in the in the stands at the game, and she throws the ball back to Gina Davis's character, and it's all yeah. and it's just like, okay, like I see you, like yeah. you know, and it's we not know, like yeah, they the it's not was just the white American community. It was America that was embracing this game, but yet they could not, the people of color could not play. And yeah, yeah just having some of those players, I think would have expressed the, the history of what baseball is and what America is. I'm being very ignorant because the only player I know is Jackie Robinson, but it's, yeah. um, that is my one. Yeah. Just to have that kind of fullness of if this is American history that needed to happen. But yeah. And saying that it's still a fantastic movie for what it's doing. It's yeah. Yeah. I, I love at the end, you, you were, you were touching on this a little bit earlier, but the Archie Graham thing where basically, you know, he has to come out of the field, cross the baseline to save Ray's daughter. Who's, who's choking Graham. it out there. Yeah. And, and so doc, so he passes over, becomes doc Graham and his life is defined by his choice to be a doctor instead of a baseball player. Yes. And here and here he's faced with the same decision again. And it's just like he chooses to do it all over again. But the the magic in race baseball field is, you know, that you know, you got the chance to to still play and to play that game and so he says I I was able to go back and do what I would have redone which is play a whole game with these heroes of mine. But at the same time, I'm a doctor. This is what I I chose to be, and and I think it's beautiful that he says it. It honors the choice he originally made. It does. It doesn't sort of say it was a mistake. It's because you've just got this amazing monologue from Burt Lancaster stating why he made his choices, and to have mm-hmm. Archie not come out to be dark, I think would have um, undercut that completely. Yeah. So it's, I think yeah his. Yeah, his life was worth something, not just the baseball bit, but yeah. the career as a doctor. And it was not a life that would, you know, it won't find itself 
into, you know, the, the history books, the way that, you know, Shoeless Joe will, but it's one that was a story that was still worth telling the way that, you know, like we, we learned that they, this, this town knew about Archie Graham and knew the story and, and he had made a, a legacy for himself through his career as a doctor. Exactly. And I think it is very, this is a movie about the choices that you make in life and how mm -hmm. things change. Things don't go according to plan. Um, the American dream is not a set thing. It ha it needs to be able to move and change and to bend, um, which I love movies like that. I mean, yes, there are so many, I mean, not to criticize pursuit of happiness because that is a very different story, but that is about a man who has a goal. He goes and does it everything's good. This is a movie about, okay, so what happens when you don't get to the place you want to go? Right. How do you make a place in the middle? And I think the ending with him playing catch with his dad is, should be so sacred. Oh, it should be, but it isn't. <laughs> it really isn't. And I, even I'm watching, when you hear about the ending, I'm like, of course he plays his catch with his freaking dad. God, Jesus Christ. When you're watching, you're like, he's playing catch with his dad. <laughs> yeah. And you get to that point and you're at the point where you don't realize that this, this movie has like Trojan horsed its way into like your heart. Yes. To where you get to that that moment where the final scene where you know Ray and his dad he he looks over and he sees him and I'm like I'm gonna try to get through this without without tearing up because I was like even just like talking about it to my wife but then I was like how am I gonna talk to Lindsay about this this is <laughs> this is rough uh, but yeah he looks over and he sees that he's there and Shoeless Joe says you know ease his pain mm. and you're like oh was him it was his dad this whole time and um you know when ray builds this baseball diamond on his farm he's thinking he's building it to help the baseball players who are haunting him the yes. shoeless joe and the 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 others the eight men out um and the truth he's building it for his dad the whole time to fulfill his dream that he never got to to actually play and especially with terrence mann and when they're in the combi and they're just sort of driving and he's like oh yeah because he's telling the story of his father and he goes like um yeah because I, I sort of pulled away from him and stopped playing catch and he goes why because yeah i was 14 and i read the boat that rocked and he's like yeah. <laughs> people put this shit on me i don't yeah he's like don't blame me <laughs> he's like no i'm not blaming you but that is just what happened he found another interest that his father couldn't be a part of and so what yeah. just happens when you're a teenager, you pull away. Um, yeah. You can't keep playing catch with your dad when you're 14 because, you know, you're going to be reading books and things that your dad just isn't into because you're becoming your own person, which is where the 60s right. sort of come in. So Terrence Mann is this another kind of idol he had that is his idol specifically, um, mm -hmm. not his dad's. So it's it's his other father figure in a weird way yeah i just tied that into star wars yay me um but <laughs> it's kind of this other influence that's his but ultimately it's going back to how he wishes he could fix things with his father ultimately yeah i i that that scene when he first introduces john his father to uh annie and his daughter karen and he doesn't introduce him as his dad you yes. know you, you feel like there's this push and pull of like Okay, is he going to address him as that or not? It's like, do they does does John know that he's his son? Does he not? And Ray says, "This is my, this is John," you know, and that's and that's it. And he and he gets right up to the edge and doesn't. And then after they've talked, and he, you know, you know, he he thanks his son, and he's like, "Is this heaven?" 
And then he's about to go back in the cornfield and you can feel Ray feeling that day slip by because he, yeah. he remembered Archie say, he says, there, there won't be another day. He's like, yeah. I realized this was my day. And so then that's when, <laughs> that's when he calls out to him and he finally says, dad, you want to have a catch? Yeah. And what I love about that is I, apparently there was a test screening and they didn't put dad in originally. It was ah. just like, want to have a catch? And people were furious. That they didn't say dad. They're like, why didn't you have him say dad? He needs to say dad. And so anyway, they ADR'd it or something. They brought yeah. they brought the the word dad back in there. And that moment, um, Timothy Busfield says the best thing about this scene and the score. He says, he says, the music in this last scene is like a ladder that's like climbing musically. And then it hits a note that I swear to God is like a dog whistle for men's emotions. That's exactly what, what Busfield says. He says, right when Ray says, you want to have a catch, and the music crescendos, and it releases this veil, and then men are just moved in ways they aren't normally. And This is a definite uh, guy crime movie. Like, this is yeah. the, one of the ultimate. I mean, there's a few um, guy crime movies. Like, you know, T2, as we've mentioned before, is a yeah. definite guy, guy crime movie. But yeah, Field of yeah. Dreams is also another one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just, you know, the way my feelings about it coming out of this, it just was perfectly summed up in this quote from, um, from Kevin Costner, where I think it was, he was interviewed on like a late night show or something, but it was recently. Yeah. And he, cause they were asking him about field of dreams. And he says, I don't know. I think that movie is our generations. It's a wonderful life. It doesn't matter how often you watch that movie. When you ask your dad, if he wants to have a catch, it seems to get people. I'm yeah. just glad to have films that do that. That's what's possible with film. That's why we make them. There's always a possibility for something to happen that you weren't expecting going into it. And that's why I believe in movies and why I make them. And that's essentially Costner's sort of his appeal for this is just like they were planning for that to be a moment that transcended generations and had this effect on people the way it did. And so I, I just think it's beautiful because it's 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 truly yeah, it's about not just fathers and sons, but the things we wish we could go back and say to people, you know, after we've lost them or we don't have a chance to anymore. No, it is. And, but dad and playing catch seems to be synonymous with each other. Like there's a thing of a dad taking their kid out to play a little sport. Like, I don't know quite mm -hmm. know why it's connected as much. And that's probably why it is kind of that the generation, other generations, um, it's a wonderful life because, it's doing that sort of same thing. It's about that. It's about reconnecting with something. And yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a beautiful movie. I mean, everyone is pitch perfect. Everyone kind of knows what they're doing, what they're making. Everyone kind of, I mean, I love Timothy Busfield. He's kind of, you can tell he thinks he's helping, um, mm -hmm. he, but yeah, he's not, but he's being a dick, but he, I've, I've said this before yeah. to friends that, basically becoming an adult is realizing that you are the Timothy Busfield character yes. in Field of Dreams and not the Kevin Costner character. Yes, that, that is true. You have to be the, you being an adult is being the Timothy Busfield. It's not it's being very Kevin depressing. Costner. You want to it's be the Kevin depressing. Costner, but <laughs> yeah. in reality, bills need to get paid, pay, not pay your bills. And so yeah. it's, it sucks, but that yeah. is the reality. And I love the fact that all he says when he sees him is like, when did these baseball players show up? Cause everyone's been telling him <laughs> there's baseball players there. There's, actual baseball and he just can't see it when he does he's like oh there's baseball players oh there she was joe jackson cool yeah. you cannot tell this far yeah and then that and then that last shot that you were talking about where it's like pulling up 
out of the farm and you see those thousands or however many yeah. cars just as far as the eye can see and it's just yeah. it's magic it's like the perfect way to end the movie it's a perfect way to end the movie and it is kind of a perfect movie in a sense i mean it's not no movie is perfect and i do call yeah. a lot of movies perfect but this is kind of it's doing what it set out to do and it hits all the emotional beats it needs to it hits all the humorous beats it needs to all the performances work together it's no it is just one of those movies that you just go and go yeah this is Build the dreams like there's no other movie like it with that we're going to be getting into uh another father movie baby the ultimate dad <laughs> the cinematic dad and also a movie that is kind of its own nostalgic object in kind of the way that people talk about baseball and build the dreams people will talk about star wars in these hollow terms because we yes. are getting into the third of the original trilogy I think it's it actually now it's episode six. I, I lose track of what's going on yes. in, in the Star Wars universe. Yeah. But we... Episode six. <laughs> episode six used to be the third movie. Now episode six, Star Wars. Start the scroll. Start speaking of legendary scores. John Williams. Um, it's going to... Well, um, we're going to do trailers first. Getting ahead of myself. So Jackson, what is going to be... Um, what is going to be your first trailer <laughs> for Return of the Jedi? <laughs> Okay, um, so there was one, you know, there was one obvious pick for me here because, you know, th they're both some of my favorite threequels and I had to keep it in the Lucasfilm family. So for this one, uh, the man with the hat is back and this time he's brought his dad. It's uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Junior, don't call me that, please. I want you to find the grail. I've heard this bedtime story before. Eternal life, Dr. Jones. The gift of youth to whoever drinks from the grail. After you, Junior. This is intolerable! No ticket. Actually, it's, I'm actually mad I didn't think about this myself because it is the man with the hat. And um, I'm kind of glad Steven Spielberg is getting a look in on this because he is the ultimate dad issue yes, uh, movie yes. director. So <laughs> it's weirdly, because ah, I know you were on the um, uh, Last Crusade episode when Matt yes. did his, yes. So yes, you obviously have very strong, I was on the Temple of Doom, which has its own whole yeah. set of issues. So that's, <laughs> that's, where I tend to land on my um, Indiana love, but yeah. Yeah. Um, for those who want to hear me talk yeah. at length about uh, The Last Crusade, I did do uh, The Last Crusade episode on Film Feast with Matt and James and Andy and Chris. And I mean, Matt was wanting us to rank our indie films. And for me, this was very, very difficult because for me, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade are just sort of neck and neck for different reasons. Obviously, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is, a is again, we're talking about perfect films, another perfect film that I think is. is also stands alone uh, in a way that The Last Crusade cannot because The Last Crusade is informed by uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And because of everything that we learn and grow to love about Indiana Jones in the first two films, then we get to have this really sort of funny character study where we meet his dad and we learn the backstory and why Indy is the way he is. And it also is like one of, if not Spielberg's funniest movie. 
It I isn't. Might, I might Man's argue. not, as much as I love Stevie, he's, comedy isn't always his strong suit. And yeah. I would say this is his, probably one of his funniest movies, yes. Yeah, and it, and it and it all comes back down to Ford and Connery and the chemistry they have, and you know the the odd predicament of finding out that you slept with the same woman as your dad, and which to be oh, fair, if you if your dad's Sean Connery, that is just going to yeah. be a a thing that's going to happen. You're just going to have to get used to that. I can't. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> and I mean we we and such we a James Bond joke. The Feast episode, but it's like yeah, of course, of course. Of course, she ended up with your dad, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things that we we said that Raiders was this thing where Spielberg and Lucas were trying to bring a serial into the modern blockbuster era in as low of a budget as they possibly could and do all these things. To, well, you know, yeah, he had to prove that he could make a movie on budget that would make money because right, 1941 right, he, did not do either of those things. <laughs> Yeah, so he was coming out of the doghouse. And then by the end of the decade, you know, he's coming back to... It's funny because he comes back to The Last Crusade in the same way that he did that because I would say Always was not really what he wanted it to be. No. And um, even with, you know, The Color Purple, I mean, The Color Purple was was great. But again, he's he's trying to prove himself as a blockbuster filmmaker again. So I really like that, you know, he's able to you know, come back to a familiar place and then essentially give us what would have been the perfect ending to a trilogy, probably of all time, where they're literally riding off into the sunset and we get this just beautiful, um, this beautiful ending. Uh, I just cannot say enough good stuff about The Last Crusade. It's just one of my top, top movies, so. I get that. I mean, I have a very different kind of way of coming to Indiana Jones. And that was Temple of Doom for me. That yeah. was the one that yeah. was always on TV. So that was the one I gravitated toward. I mean, I don't think I saw um, Raiders until late teens. For some reason, I just this never came into my path. Um, I'd seen the sequels, like I'd mm-hmm. definitely seen um, Last Crusade by that point. But it was kind of weird to watch Raiders with so much baggage on it. Like it took me a minute to go. Oh no, he's inventing all this stuff in Raiders. Like yeah. that, I know he's he's or he's the one that this is where it's coming first. But like, as Spielberg what, would have you have it, you actually watched it in the right order because you were watching the prequel first. Exactly, <laughs> I was because that is a prequel. Because now they had dates; they never had dates before. <laughs> now Disney put dates on them to make you know that yeah. um, um, uh, uh, Temple is is a prequel. It is um, Fortune and Glory. Uh, and then nope. it's put in a muse in a museum. Um, it belongs in a museum. But watching it this uh, the Last Crusade this last time, it, I it kind of started clicking for me way more. And you're right, it's the relationship between Harrison and Connery. It's that chemistry. It is that having a father who you one you're never going to live up to, and you're never going to surpass his shadow, no matter what you do. He is he's the original James Bond. He which is why also Lucas and Spielberg wanted to make uh, Raiders is because they couldn't use the, they knew they would never be able to, to make a James Bond movie. So they took the serials and, and, and that. Um, you are never going to surpass your father. And that can be a sucky feeling of realizing, especially when you're in the same field. Like he was much yeah. more um, a religious kind of archaeologist to what um, thing is, but you're always going to have, oh yeah, but you're his son. You're the you're the nepo baby, so it's yeah. <laughs> it's this amazing thing of also when you joined this, you got interested in the same thing as your father did to be close to your father, but your father 
unlike the other dreams, your father's always going to be more interested in the Holy Grail than he is you. And you actually have to right. find the Holy Grail to get. And then when they find it, what he's been searching for this whole life reveals to uh, Henry what he needed to know, which was, you know, that his, his relationship with his son was more his, valuable. Was more valuable, which and, he and, learns. Yeah. Yeah. Illumination. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that that's my pick there. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a perfect pick because of that reason. And I, yeah, the last time I watched it, I was like, oh yes, this works absolutely because of, um, yes. I'm annoyed that Marcus is an idiot <laughs> in that movie. Yes. That was always, that's always going to annoy me. That man knows how to navigate a train station. Um, but it is the but, but I will say the cut from when when Indy is is talking about Marcus to him being in that like it's a crowded great marketplace. Joke. Still great, like a, maybe a, one of the the funniest cuts in a Spielberg movie ever. It's and, it's a great <laughs> gag. It I'm just like mm, nah, Marcus would mm, okay, I, I get the yeah. gag. I love the gag. <laughs> Marcus would know what to, what he's doing. I'm sorry, do not yeah. like Marcus an idiot. But the, it's the relationship between the father and son when they're on the blimp um, and they're talking is probably one of the best shot. It's one of the best dialogue scenes he's ever done. And so even in the movie that is not my favorite Spielberg, I'm still going to have moments and going, well, that is the greatest thing ever because he's friggin' Steven Spielberg. So in, no, in one yeah. line, in yeah. one line, you're, you're bringing up the blimp scene, maybe the best line in the film to describe their relationship and sort of the baggage that Indy has is when Indy tells him, remember the last time we had a drink together? He said, I ordered a milkshake. And that and that just tells you everything you need to know about the two of them. Exactly. Actually, my favorite thing is, because um, I think they're talking about this movie in the Steven Spielberg documentary, and they're interviewing his father before he passed, passed away. And they said, did you notice the father stuff? And he goes, yeah, I noticed it. He said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, He's like, yeah, yeah, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 not to mention we we talked about this in in film feast too. But watching Last Crusade after seeing the Fablemans, there's a whole new layer there that there really like, is. Okay, I get yeah. it. I get yeah, it. I get it. This is this is exactly what it is. Okay, so for my first trailer, I am also going to go for a very difficult father son relationship. Though this father is not redeemable at all. But I am going to go for the sequel that should never have happened, but I kind of like it more than the movie, and that is Dr. Sleep from Mike Flanagan from 2019. The world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These hunted devils, they'll eat what shines. Noticed that little girl. Wow, hi there. Get out of my head! Get out! I haven't felt power like that in so long. They're coming. Where are we going? There's a place. You sure you want to do this? Nice. The trailer's not going to show which one I'm doing, but. I love the director's cut. I think the director's cut is a modern masterpiece. Um, the scene with Danny talking to his father played beautifully by Henry Thomas, which I did not think he could do a Jack Nicholson. It's not a, it's, not, it's kind of an impression, but it's kind of not. Um, yeah. Is so 
good and speaks to so much about Danny's addictions that he got from, that he inherited from his father, the fact that his father was never able to overcome them um, and the fact that he's able to talk to his ghost and his dad is still not repentant about anything. He just keeps talking about the mouths he had to feed. and Yeah. Yeah. You should drink again. And in The Shining, Jack takes the drink. In Dr. Sleep, Danny doesn't. And yeah. I love the scene so much. I mean, it is referencing Kubrick in a very referential way, yet it is doing what Mike Flanagan does best. And I adore this movie. Rose the Hat is one of the great all-time oh, villains yeah. now. Hey there, um, Rebecca Ferguson <laughs> plays her. Like you kind of want to hang out, you kind of want to be part of what she's doing, even if she is torturing children to death. Um, which the movie she, really reminds you of that this is what they do. She's like one of those villains. Like you see those those prompts online where people are like, "This is a character I'm not supposed to like, but I do." And she's she's sort of the definition of that. She like <laughs> she's wears the hat. I mean, yeah, yeah, up to the point where they're like killing Jacob Tremblay. I am all in. I'm like, yeah, this is fun. Oh wait. You feed off the scrims of children. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that, that scene, it was like, that scene was one of those where I was like, how did you do this? How did, how did you all like, like go through with this? Yeah. Cause apparently Jacob was fine. Every though he was freaking everybody out. It is. Yeah. It was one of those movies. I'm like, oh, I didn't see Henry Thomas in this. Where is he? Oh wait, he's playing Jack. Okay. I have it now. Yeah. But no, it is, it is mainly the scene of, Danny being able to talk to his father again and seeing that mm-hmm. trailer just after you've seen Field of Dreams and before you've meant to go into Jedi, I think is incredibly powerful because this is unfortunately sometimes the reality of having an abusive parent, you not wanting to turn into them, but realizing it will be the death of everyone if you do. Like it is, right. you have to be above your parent at some stage. You have to go above what your parents did at some stage. And it is... Yeah, I, I yeah, it's I love this movie. <laughs> and the other thing you may have you may or may not have been thinking about this when you chose it, but much like the way the Force and what we understand about the Force kind of expands with Return of the Jedi, I feel like the same thing with what we know about the Shining grows in Doctor Sleep. Like yes. they're 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 definitely expanding the mythos and what we know about that and how it how it it. Um, impacts the people that have it or those who don't and all this. And in, in return of the Jedi for the first time, we, we realized that like, Oh, Leia has this ability too, because she senses Luke and she senses these things. And so we're learning that it's not just, you know, the Jedi or it's not just Luke or this, this sort of thing. So yeah. very interesting parallel between the two. Very. Mythos. Yes. I did think about the shining and the force in terms of how they use and how they're expanded. So yeah, but that is going to be my first uh, trailer. What is going to be your second trailer? Okay. Um, when I was thinking about sort of science fiction, fantasy films that explore the father son relationship, um, a much more current contender that I, I wanted to to tap into was uh, 2010's Tron legacy. Sam, I'm very, very happy to see you. 
I supposed to do? Your father was the creator. Where do I find him? Make it there alive, and he'll find you. Interesting. Speaking of yeah. amazing soundtracks, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Because I, I felt like if Return of the Jedi is one of those pinnacles of, of practical special effects, I would say Tron Legacy is sort of the answer to that in digital effects and that it's s- sort of like the the ideal in terms of like modern digital effects being used in a way that's not annoying. It's very minimal and it's very atmospheric and they and they really made it like a video game come to life in the best way possible. They really did. I mean, I've only seen it the once, but I remember really liking it. And it was getting dissed at the time. It's going, it's going through a, a um a reassessment at the moment, at least on film mm-hmm. Twitter, which I don't know if it's yeah. that's an actual film of reassessment or if it's just five people I going. Think, I, I think a rules. lot of people. I think a lot yeah. of people are like coming out of Top Gun Maverick, and they're like, oh yeah, Joseph uh, Kaczynski did have this. He he yeah. had something, and. It just maybe didn't get the flowers that it deserved as as a visual triumph, but it it absolutely is. I mean, this is a movie that kind of came out of left field for me because, I mean, I knew about the original. I had watched the original. I, I kind of felt like I grew up thinking like, okay, it's Tron. It's cool. It's kind of dated. It has a very like sort of 80s vibe to it and works for what it is. But when they came out with this, and I, I mean, just like, pointing to like the light cycle scene where he's like, yes, you know, that, I mean, that was just like, and, and I think I saw it in 3d and this was like, where there were a few things that were really working for me in 3d at around that, like avatar time when it was starting to like boom again. And everybody was like, Oh, avatars in 3d. So we need to do 3d. And this worked for me in a way where I was like, yes, this, this is how it's meant to be seen. Yeah. I did not see this at a theater. Cause again, this movie came out of, um, left field because again i had seen tron but as you were saying it is um i was just trying to remember who was the uh, score it was not chemical brothers it was daft punk oh daft punk daft punk yeah that it sort of came out from left field it was like because the original tron is like this weird antique disney movie it's kind of like um the black hole a little bit but a little bit well it's from their dark age like when they were like maybe at the bottom bottom early 80s and they were just throwing everything at the wall and see what could stick and you know as far as i know the first tron was not a hit no but it but it became sort of a cult in a way a curiosity. cult status film cult, cult curiosity film i think it was, yeah. yeah yeah just the way it used That's, technology and computer graphics and all that kind of thing yeah so i i think this was the best possible version of a legacy sequel to that and and like you said the score i mean the score is probably in my top 25 scores or my, I mean, the last, I don't know, maybe the last 30 years, it's up there for me. I love the score. Uh, Daft Punk creating this sort of like land, sonic landscape that is just, it like puts you in the movie. If, if you're, this is like ultimate driving music, but be hmm. very careful when you're driving, listening to this, because it's you're like, going to, you're going to start speeding up. <laughs> yeah. You're going to start speeding up and you're just going to be like, this is great. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Tron legacy just works in on so many ways for me. And I'm, yeah, I love this movie. No, I need to go back, read back and visit it because I think it was at the time, again, more of a curiosity. Like I didn't quite, mm-hmm. the things 
it was kind of like a oh yeah that was wasn't actually pretty good like i didn't hate it but i haven't gone back and revisited it so i need to actually go back and re- revisit that because yeah yeah i think it's one of those movies that age better and the fact that uh what's his name did direct uh maverick and for that to be such a powerhouse of um of a movie that again just taps into certain emotions <laughs> that everyone seemed to uh, get behind yeah the, i mean just just see it for the michael sheen performance alone he's just like so over the top i mean there's there's a lot of good i mean jeff bridges is great in it but i i, I don't even think michael sheen was as on my radar you know 15 years ago and so i was like whoa this is who is this and he's totally doing he's kind of like doing his best david bowie uh he, he in, in that yeah too. yeah no i love every time michael sheen pops up i think he's He's such a, he can go so big and it's always so wonderful to, to, to witness. Okay. What am I going to choose? Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to go. Okay. My second trailer. I am going to go for another journey into the, into the jungle, but I'm going to go for Lucas's mate, Francis Will Coppola's Apocalypse Now. I wanted a mission for my sins. They gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before. And when it was over, I'd never want another one. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. When you find the colonel, infiltrate his team by whatever means available and terminate the colonel's command. Terminate. Terminate is extreme prejudice. Say I'm not supposed to know where I'm taking this boat, so I don't. But one look at you, and I know it's gonna be hot. A movie I weirdly don't love, and I don't know why, because I've had some other options to go with. Like could have gone Captain America, the first Avenger, you know, Jared Johnson, because he actually yeah. also worked on this movie. Um, and when I first did not realize he was a star, he actually worked on Star Wars until way later. I went, oh, Captain America makes so much more sense. But no, I'm going to go oh, into yeah. the heart of darkness. I know people love this movie. Um, I still have not seen the theatrical, which is maybe why I'm a little kind of, it's kind of bloated. It's kind of way too egotistical um, for me to yeah. completely get behind. But I will say the scene when the other Sheen, Martin Sheen, is finally confronting um marlon brando and marlon brando is, is again not giving him what he wants i've got a theme here because uh darth vader does give luke uh, uh skywalker what he, luke, what he wants pure coppola and it's like okay yeah yeah i may not like this movie but you still make scenes that are truly divine so yeah i'm gonna go yeah. for the uh, apocalypse now napalm sure I mean, smells good in the morning yeah i mean the the, uh, the, the smell of, scene yeah. That whole uh, opening scene on Apocalypse Now. I mean, the cinematography in this film is is incredible. It is, I, yeah. I I got a chance to see it. I don't even know how it's been five or six years now, but um, see it in rep in rep and seeing it on a big screen. I think definitely took it up a notch for me. Yeah. And going and going from the director's cut to the theatrical, I think also makes makes a difference. I, I think I need to track down the the. The, the theatrical because the whole thing with the Frenchman and the whole, it just, it gets very meandering. And, but there are certain scenes where you just like, I'm like, Oh, so Dennis Hopper's whole thing was that he's on cocaine. So he took cocaine. Yeah. You can kind of tell, but 
there are some moments that are absolute. I mean, this cost me this. I mean, I love how Coppola kept using Harrison Ford for like five minute bits, and then he just like you're just standing in my that's Harrison Ford. And it's and it's also very episodic. If you, very if you look episodic. at like the way that it it all plays out, it's not not so much like a traditional structure of a film. Kind so of like that's Jedi. another thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it makes it very like Jedi. You have like yes, you have your axe, but it's like you can drop in on Jedi at any given moment and be like, oh, I'm, I want to watch this section or I yes. want to see this part or this and that. And it works very well in that way. I think mm. the way uh, Apocalypse Now does. Yes. Yes. So I, and plus that score is amazing. Yes. They're using Wagner a lot. Um, I can't yeah. remember who scored the, the movie, but um, it has some of the best actors of the time giving some of their best performances, even if Marlon Brando apparently was, I think that's when Coppola realized the true nature of working with Marlon Brando was on Apocalypse Now. Uh, not the Godfather. Yeah. I think of the Godfather. He was behaving, and this movie is like, eh, yeah, he knows me. Though I know I have watched. Um, I think that's probably why. I think I watched the documentary Heart of Darkness before I watched the movie. So I think I've constantly got all that chaos happening in my head while I'm yeah. watching it. So I don't have it as a movie on its own. Yeah, and Apocalypse um, Now yeah. can at times feel like a documentary in the way it, that it's shot, especially like the the battle scenes and things like yes. that. It's like. This feels way too real. Yeah, it does. It does. And then it will just go into pure fantasy the next moment. So you're constantly jumping around between documentary, between pure fantasy, between something else, and then you get the Marlon Brown. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a just a disjointed movie, which I may need to watch again. Cause, yeah. But for some reason, it seemed like a really good trailer to show in front of. Um, oh, perfect. Yeah, a, another war movie. Um, I mean, I mean, we yeah. can we can get into it more later, but I mean, there there was a lot of inspiration when we when we built into like the uh, the Ewoks and the the Endor stuff, where um, Lucas was wanting to draw from the Vietnam War and things like that. So yeah, that, that is a very interesting tie. Yeah, and you also have to remember these guys. I mean, we've talked about Spielberg already, um, but. Especially Coppola and Lucas were very tight. I mean, Lucas wanted to make experimental mm-hmm. movies. He did not mm-hmm. want to be the Star Wars guy. Right. Um, but he did. And I think he's just accepted that I'm the Star Wars guy now. But yeah. he wanted to do interesting, weird things. And yes, when he was making, um, he was definitely pulling in. And they would have seen, every, they all would have seen everyone's movies. Yeah. Like my favorite line from the show that wasn't good, but it had some really good performances was um, the offer, which is about the making of the Godfather. And my favorite line is when the guys playing Coppola, Foley, Fo- Fogley, um, goes, oh, I'm going to go see um, Martin Scorsese. So, so I'm going over to Martin Scorsese's mother's house so I can get the accent right. I'm just like, yeah, that's actually what have happened. They just would have all hung out and shared ideas and showed each other's everyone's movies. Yeah. And yeah. Because I know famously, um, Steven Spielberg was the only one who liked the rough cut of the original Star Wars. Everyone was like going, oh, George, what did you do? And this isn't what you wanted to make. And Steven was like, going, no, 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 you, the fix out there, but I can see what, what you're doing. And something's there. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, it's been talked about a lot, but De Palma was the one that suggested George add the scroll to the film. Yes, yes. Return for the climactic clash between the forces of good and evil. Return to a galaxy far, far away. Return of the Jedi.
the next chapter in the continuing Star Wars saga. The battle for freedom rages on. The heart of a hero. The courage of a rebel. The strength of a leader. The loyalty of comrades. The power of the force. The cunning of the enemy. A destiny revealed. Is Darth Vader my father? A legend fulfilled. An epic of heroes. And that was something where it was like, George was like, no, like, we're just going to get into it. And he's like, he's like, you realize you, you have all this lore and this stuff that you're wanting to just kind of drop people into. He's like, this, he's like, trust me, this will be iconic. Oh, cool. Yes. And it, yeah. it was iconic. Like, so listen to your friends sometimes. Yes. Listen to your friends, especially when they're Brian De Palma, um, yeah. Francis Paul Coppola <laughs> and Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese. Right. Listen to right. your friend because they are very smart people. <laughs> but yeah, as soon as you hear that da 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 and that John Williams score and that scroll comes up, mm-hmm. I'm home. I don't know how else to describe it. I've seen some of the Star Wars quite a few times in rep screenings or in the re-releases. I did have, oh, I wish I could find, I think it's in the tub downstairs somewhere. I do have a DVD with the re-releases and then the original and i want to find the original so bad because i'm like i know i have them somewhere yeah a couple years ago i i think it was during the pandemic or something i just was starting to make a lot of you know you were making a lot of like coping purchases where you're Mm -hmm. like you're Mm -hmm. like i need something that uh makes me nostalgic so half of my blu-ray collection is why i have no money now yeah Yeah, so so i like bought uh i bought the a despecialized version. There was a version that had both the original theatrical and the special edition all on one set. And it had come out sometime in the early aughts. And I was like, I'm going to spend That's a, a pretty yeah, penny yeah. on, uh, on eBay for that. And, and I did that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I even a couple of years ago, I bought um, a laser disc of the uh, special edition return of the Jedi. Cause I was like, ah, oh, I don't have this, you know, this is a necessary purchase. So, so went in and, and bought another version. I don't know how many, versions of the film i have but i i have quite a few and it's yeah this is still sort of like a comfort film for me and we can we can get into it as we go into like the the star wars of it all but return of the jedi still um it's funny that you that you mentioned temple of doom being your entry point to indiana jones yeah. uh return of the jedi was the first star wars movie i saw oh and this, and, i think it was for a lot of people who are yeah. in their early 40s Mid to, yeah. early to mid forties, I think it was probably return that you saw before yeah. anything else. Yeah. And I didn't, and I didn't actually see it in the theater either. I mean, it's, I, I, I saw it at some point um, in the early nineties. I mean, star Wars is something that I feel like has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. And I, I don't know if I'm on the level of some of our friends like Chris Barreras or, or uh, Andy Gorham. No who, one is. Who, <laughs> I mean, I, I aspire to that level of fandom, but I, I count myself as their peer in in Star Wars fandom because um, it's it's one of those things that just I, I've been a fan of throughout my life. And I started 
getting into Star Wars in what I like to consider the dark age, which is that like late 80s, early 90s, where we had four things. We had books, we had comics, we had video games, and we had action figures. Yeah. And we we never thought there was a possibility we were going to get another Star Wars movie ever. Like the prequels were on the far horizon. And I, I mean, yeah, this is another 99 movie. And I will, as much as I have issues with Phantom Menace, that mm. movie fell so everyone else could run. I mean, I think yeah. people forget that um, how, and I can't describe, I mean, a lot of 99 movies caught us off guard. Like we weren't, ex- no one expected The Matrix. I mean, that, yeah. as I said, you walk into The Matrix, you come out a different person. The hype yeah. around The Phantom Menace is yeah. hard to describe. Like, I yeah. don't even think there was the same thing around The Force Awakens. Like, everyone was excited for Force Awakens. There was a buzz. People cheered on my theater, which in Australia, very little cheering, except if you're an opening night watching <clears throat> Endgame or apparently Force Awakens. We would have given it two weeks, and then we were done. The Phantom Menace, you could feel it in the air, like, everywhere. Yeah. That week it was yeah. coming out, everyone had bought their midnight tickets. Everyone had... That's all everyone was talking about. People were buying Jar Jar Binks figurines. Like it was exciting. And then the movie came out and that stopped. About it. But it, we were on this yeah. weird cusp. We were on this weird cusp of the internet because the yes. internet was, was around and you would spend an hour waiting for the Phantom Menace trailer to load. Download. So yep. you could watch it. Make a sandwich, um, do a couple of chores, come back, you could watch it. And then it was yeah, a buffer then, in the middle. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so, so you have that aspect of the internet. But you weren't at the point where you'd have the internet discourse that would rip the movie apart for six months before it came out to mm-hmm. where people already had made up their opinions before they've seen it. So everyone's going in with this sort of same still level of hype of like, we've we've gone for 16 years without a Star Wars movie. So, I mean, we've been starved. We're in the desert, you know? I mean, for me, I remember the, the Shadows of the Empire uh, video games. So Shadows of the Empire was a book that took place in between the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Um, back then, all the new Star Wars stuff we had was either right before or right after Return of the Jedi. So everything was sort of like orbiting this story. Yes. And I remember it being something where that that's that kind of added to my affinity for it as well, because it's like everything's right around Return of the Jedi. And then, you know, we find out about the Phantom Menace and the and the special editions, of course. That was like the perfect primer oh, for the I Phantom Menace. To all three of them. Like, yeah. it was, they were events. Like, oh, wait, they're showing the original Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, like, within three months of each? Or was it yeah. every year? Yeah, three months, one yeah. Month right, yeah, one yeah. month right after the other. Yeah, yeah, really, really close together. And you can go see them on the big screen, because I had not seen any of them up to that point. Like, these yeah. were all TV watches for me, so we everyone it was the perfect primer and i i don't think you could do that again even with the original because we've got too much star wars you could argue i know chris yeah. and uh and never um yeah. but i think no, <laughs> no. <laughs> i want more i'm like okay guys we i think we're forgetting that star wars used to be an event that's and yeah. i miss that because i'm old yeah. school and that's but, very yeah. much yeah how i felt going into the phantom menace because i mean like I said, we were in the nineties, we still had that monoculture where it was like everything was Phantom Menace for like six months straight. And you couldn't go to like a Taco Bell or a Toys R Us or anywhere without seeing the Phantom Menace. And so for me, that that is very much an experience, uh, a release that is carbon dated in my mind as this unique film going experience. I remember 
getting out of school early and going and standing in a line and taking shifts with friends because we were in a, a line for six hours to go see uh, Phantom Menace on opening day. And it's still a movie that I have. I know, you know, we're talking about Return of the Jedi, but Phantom Menace is one of those movies that still feels like it had some of the weird holdover of Return of the Jedi. It was very like there was creatures and there was like, you know, instead of the speeder bikes, you had the pod race and, you know, a lot of the stuff that was carried over. And I, I still have a lot of uh, love for, for Phantom Menace. And it's one of those things where I've gone through an interesting and complicated relationship with that movie. Cause I got, I, I loved it in high school. I loved it when I saw it. And then you get to college and you're like, you become a film snob and you're like, I don't know if I like the Phantom Menace, do I? And I, I was like, you know, not not as uh, you know, I wasn't saying it with my chest as much when I was talking about my how much I love Phantom Menace. Yeah. Now I'm an old guy, and I, and I I don't give a shit. I'm like I love the Phantom Menace. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll just ignore the the people who who have problems with it, but I still love it. No, I mean I went sort of my dad. We saw it very very close. It was I was seventeen eighteen. And I didn't necessarily, like most teenagers, I read Rock the Boat, stopped playing hats with my dad. I stopped going to movies with my dad, but we made a point to go see. And I remember not loving it at the time. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't, but I wasn't necessarily the biggest, I liked watching Ghost Star Wars. I went and saw the the re-releases, but I wasn't necessarily, I didn't read the comics. I didn't read the books. I didn't have any reaction figures. I just, I still, I just liked the movies more than anything else. And I know Phantom was considering the hype that was around it. It was kind of disappointing. And I was like, oh, it's very special effect heavy. I don't know if I like the effects. Um, yeah. Because it wasn't, I think there's a definite shift. I mean, it's been working up to that throughout the 90s, but I think there's a definite shift when you see Phantom Menace and realize where we're going to go with special effects then. So it's something about it rubbed me the wrong way. And then when, I became a movie snob. It didn't help that Yoda was bouncing around friggin' fighting Daku, uh, Christopher <laughs> Lee, um, yeah. like a friggin' pinball. So I think I went, okay, so maybe I don't like Star Wars. Maybe that was a childhood thing that I have to leave behind and I'm going to go and watch Francis Ford Coppola movies because obviously that was the, the, the Martin Scorsese movies or just kind of David Lynch. And when you're a movie snob, you're getting a bit more artsy. Um, now I've come back around on them i still have weird kind of things but they're part of the movie now for me like they're not um they're not like when i was 20 going oh god those are the worst i mean really he wrote the line i don't like sand which i will still make fun of because it's i don't like sand (laughs) no one had a chance of delivering that line for hayden um but it is they are kind of what they are and you have to take the quotes with the thing and he is still expanding the universe. And when you get older, you realize there was a whole generation who's that's their Star Wars. So, yeah, which exactly. is why everyone gets angry at the new Star Wars because it's not my Star Wars. And I think that's right. probably why I bolted against um, Phantom when I did. It's because like, hang on, this isn't Empire. This isn't Jedi. I, I don't yeah. know. This isn't not really Ewan McGregor's just doing an Alan Guinness accent like yeah I, I was one of those guys so which is a great point because yeah like I said um I was introduced at four or five to to Return of the Jedi and 
now going back, I remember reading reviews of Return of the Jedi by grown men who are like, what is this Hated with the, the little, Ewoks. <laughs> the teddy bears? By the way, I'm pro-Ewok. Are you pro-Ewok? I am very pro-Ewok. I, ne- okay. I nearly chose Caravan of Courage. I just haven't seen it since I was five. So okay. I, have, um... <laughs> I, I have thoughts that I want to share. Great thoughts about the Ewok movies. But oh. I was I was coming into this nervous, like, is Lindsay going to be pro-Ewok? What kind oh, I love of uh, podcast is going to be? <laughs> I mean, they so, just totally beat the shit out of um, stormtroopers who apparently have no balance. I love it. So, so it's just like, yes, everyone has their Star Wars. And so for me to like come in and love uh, Return of the Jedi, because that was my entry point. Now, now I've you know grown up and I'm at the point where, yes, Empire Strikes Back is my favorite Star Wars movie. I still have this, this fondness and appreciation for this movie because this was like my first Star Wars movie. So, and I think everyone's going to have that. Some kids are going to have that with the force awakens or the, the rise of Skywalker or the last Jedi. They're going to, some, some people are going to introduce their kids to star Wars through like Obi-Wan Kenobi or something on Disney plus. And that's, oh, sure and that's great. Cause they'll have that entry yeah. point, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, the first star Wars movie, I remember this very specifically was, I think it was, it was, the, it was the first one. It was, I would have been about three or four. It was on TV and I remember being terrified of the ads that the show, oh, Saturday night, it's going to be Star Wars. I hated Darth Vader's breathing. Like that really freaked <laughs> me. I was freaked out a lot yeah. as a kid. So I was constantly just leaving the room and going to hide whenever something was on TV. Yeah. Um, my brother just had very much fun with Jaws uh, because of that reason. Um, so. But we I had re- that fascination with things that like scared us. Yes. But we were like, like I got to see it still, I but I'm it. scared of it. I remember my older sister coming in and telling me it's okay. You only hear him, you don't see him. So you're going to be fine. Um, so, okay. So I came back in and of course the first goddamn scene in um, A New Hope, just originally Star Wars, was Darth Vader walking out and um, you're doing his Darth Vader thing with, with Leia. Yeah. And I just remember being frozen like the other time i remember this was silence of the lambs when uh wild bill was introduced in in silence of the lambs and i'm just yeah. like going, what the hell um and i think it's i kind of weirdly credit that from going oh movies that's they can mm-hmm. do that to you yeah and maybe that's why i'm so fanatically yeah because you yeah. Ha- when a kid if something scares you you have to watch it and i had to watch it it was Return of the Jedi that constantly got played on TV. So mm-hmm. any quiet, sad day, they would just go, and this Return of the Jedi. So that's the one I would watch. And Ewoks are awesome. I mean, I watched the cartoon. I definitely rented Caravan of Courage. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little scared to go back to <laughs> that movie in particular. It kind, of, it kind of feels like they're trying to do Willow, but with Ewoks, which I'm not opposed to, oh. by the way, at all. But yeah. just yeah. a little, it's on Disney Plus. I can watch it. Um, though why still know something wicked this way comes? Seriously, Disney, you've yeah. got anyway. Um I the, the Emperor the Emperor was kind of that thing for me, like you were saying with Darth Vader, of like I was scared of it at the time. I'm like five years old. I'm like, oh my like, oh, who is terrifying. this? Yeah. I'm scared of it, but I wanna I wanna watch more. And yeah, so that 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 started it for me. And I think it 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 went on from there. Like you said, Silence of the Lambs. I remember um peeking around the corner watching uh, Misery as my parents were watching Misery with friends and just being like terrified, but like, you can't look away. <laughs> oh, I had the same thing with the TV movie It. Like I remember 
being in my parents' bedroom with the TV, one foot in the bedroom, one foot out of the bedroom, watching it, waiting to run when it when Pennywise came on screen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had to watch it, like, and Pennywise is one of my favorite um, monsters because of it. So yeah, there is a thing that terror making you scared kind of integrates you into sort of watching it, but you're just really nervous. Yeah. Um, but then you realize there's nothing to be scared of because in usually those movies, the evil is defeated. And right. I mean, I was sort of w- watching Jedi this time. I was like, man, no one says um, Dark Side or um, the Jedi, like quite like Ian McDermott. Like, so be it. Jedi. So be it. Jedi. Dark yeah. Side. Um, no one. <laughs> I mean, I love the fact that he got to play his younger self because the Empire is so like makeup decrepit. Like, he oh, yeah. to play the younger Palpatine. Yeah, we need to talk about the fact that um, Ian McDermott is only like 38 years old in this movie yeah, so it's like the that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the secret <laughs> yes. um hire young actors make them up to be old and then you can have them for decades yes you can he is he is the empire he is the emperor at this stage like it yeah. is kind of amazing um though i'm still not over him coming back and rise of skywalker as soon as the yeah. dead speak i'm like oh crap <laughs> yeah. so but, yeah it's, it was uh, it, it was really like the first sort of father son or father related blockbuster if we're like getting into it but like the more the more i look into i was like wow return the jedi was made for 40 million dollars and that blows my mind because to put it into perspective i think cocaine bear was like 35 million dollars yeah and so you're like return of the jedi is this sort of like timeless like blockbuster sensation and somehow all the production design in it like cocaine bear i have fun with that movie no 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 production design whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> They're in the forest. Um, yeah. This movie has all the production design because what I love about Star Wars is that the mechanics behind everything you see, how everything works. Um, yes, yeah. I mean, if you, okay, I'm going to, I never know any of what the machines are called. So the two legged, um, the, uh, the ATSTs, but well, the I ATSTs. call them chick- chicken walkers. I chicken walkers. Them chicken walkers. It's like I call the ones in um, Empire Strikes Back camels, even though my partner always corrects me. No, that's yeah. an 88. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so it looks like a camel. Oh my God, that scene in Empire. Oh, I love it so much. Anyway, yeah. not wrong movie. Um, but the chicken walkers, you kind of know how they work. They're like kind of tanks with long legs. And yeah. it's, I love, I mean, there's one thing George Lucas got right. And the thing this movie carries is how things move. I mean, the way... Mm-hmm a um oh what's the uh the um empire's spaceship little thing called not the, the when they're the, the tie fighters or the, the tie fighters the, okay. the tie fighters the way tie fighters move and mm-hmm. the way x-wings move when they're flying around is mm-hmm. something about it just works so well they yeah. the people who were doing the facts that joe johnson uh, joe johnston and phil tippett and all those legendary guys the way they got them to move feels it's again when i see this you hear the sound and i just see a tie fighter fly through space i'm like i'm home this is this is home for me and and i I don't know how it was nominated it It was nominated for best sound and best sound effects editing and so ben burt is like the main guy that's behind all of that but just unbelievable like you hear the sound of a tie fighter what kind of just sounds like a sort of scream if you will and it's just like you know it's like classic iconic sound effects and yeah. there's so many things about this movie that that they get right in that way that's just like that's signature star wars why well, i um when we were talking about 
Phantom Menace, I was thinking about the fact that Lucas chose to come back and direct all the prequels. And yet in the original trilogy, he had Irving Kirshner and yeah, he directed one. Then he had Irving Kirshner do Empire Strikes Back. Um, Famously because he had a horrible time with production on the first film. He had a heart attack. There was all these things that just basically said, he said, I want to be behind the scenes. I want to be the producer. I still want to micromanage, but I want someone else to kind of wear the bait, the, the weight on their shoulders and bear that I can't do it. And so he brings Kirshner in the second time, which is, which is great because Kirshner uh, basically shot for the edit. And so for Kirshner, he got the exact movie he wanted. Unfortunately for Lucas, Lucas wanted those big master shots that he could edit around and really kind of make the movie his own in the edit bay. And so that's something that he didn't like. The other thing that was a nightmare for Lucas is that Kirshner uh, famously encouraged people to improv and to kind of do different things with Lucas scenes and their like. lines. He didn't like that either. He said, this is my script. But this is how it's it, supposed to be. But without it, we would have never gotten the I love you, I know. Which... Exactly. Which is what makes Empire a lot of people's favorite movies. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the thing behind that. So all of this kind of led to him being like, you know, and I, and I wondered with Phantom Menace, like, okay, how would it have been if Lucas had brought in different directors for the prequels, like what would the prequels have looked like if he was still involved, but had different directors? I, like I said, I love Phantom Menace the way it is, but it's always interesting to me to compare those with Empire and Jedi and how those filmmakers kind of still, they, they still had a voice and they had a vision that came through, even though Lucas was still in control. Yeah, Yeah. I think because I think people forget that Irvin Kershner and Richard Mark, 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 Mark Wand, um directed those movies because it's George Lucas's vision. He is the one who did the yeah. edit. He is the one who um, was mainly overseeing the effects, the sound design. Like he kind of knew exactly what he wanted, but he just yeah. didn't want to be. He didn't want to be hassled as the director because, as I think Kevin Smith has put it, the bigger the movie, on the more that you're just problem solving. You're not actually. Yeah. You've yeah. got ADs, you've got um, everything else. And so you're just the guy who's like, okay, something's broken. We need this. And you're like, ah, yeah. okay. I'm and, just problem solving at this stage. And, and um, what's wild yeah. is that going into Jedi, he still didn't know who he wanted to direct it. And so there's this whole famous search for a director for Return of the Jedi. David Lynch that, nearly got the job, which would have been fascinating. It was like, what have you been doing? Yeah. Like if David Lynch, if David Lynch had gotten the, the job, um, I mean, you think George Lucas had a problem with how dark Marquand did Jedi, uh, or how how dark Kirshner uh, yeah. yeah. did Empire? Imagine how dark Lynch would make Return of the Jedi. That was that would be uh, wild. That's a whole different would, movie. Those two would not have gotten along because they have very different sensibilities. And he went and made Dune, which is how he even he just kind of disowned Dune. I'm like, that Dune's weird, and you just got to lean into it. I mean, it's a weird yeah. friggin' premise to begin with, <laughs> even though Dune is so important to Star Wars. Like, I'm watching Dune, mm-hmm. going, oh, this is this is where friggin' Lucas got Star Wars. Okay, uh, the pieces are coming together, or some of yeah. Dune. Like, it's you could definitely tell. Um, and I read the book. I'm like, yeah, George Lucas read and, Dune. Um, but well, and- yeah. And Spielberg was his first choice, but he couldn't get Spielberg because he had gotten Kirshner. And so because he had pulled Kirshner into Empire, he was at odds with the uh, Directors Guild. And so they're like, they're like, no, 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 no. You wanted this other guy. So since you didn't use a director from the Guild, you're not getting Spielberg for for Jedi. He's like, but Spielberg is my friend. And they're like, 
nope. <laughs> they're, they're, they're so petty with him on this. And so, which is also mm-hmm. an interesting thing is like, what would, what would we have gotten with a Spielberg directed Jedi? That's a whole nother thing too. Which it would have been perfect because the dad issues have really come to light in this. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then what's weirder than a David Lynch return of the Jedi is Lucas's third choice, which was David Cronenberg. And I want to <gasps> know. This one I did not know. Holy yeah. shit. I want to know what Job of the Hutt looks like in a David Cronenberg movie. <laughs> yeah, because people forget. Jabba the Hutt was a dude in the original yeah. theatrical <laughs> Star Wars. Like, you got to be a bit careful because there's like 50. George, I, one hand, Disney has kind of done Disney with Star Wars. At the same time, I'm like, yeah, George needs to leave Star Wars alone. So he needs to take it out of his hands <laughs> so he can't meddle anymore. Um, but yeah, it's a dude. And they put, and they put uh, Jabba the Hutt back in um, for the re-releases. Um, oh, my God, David. Because yeah. yeah. he can do blockbusters, but he'd still no matter what movie he makes his worldview is always this is a term i'm stealing from blank check which i do a lot where they're talking about how david fincher no matter what movie he makes his worldview is always going to be in there same with david cronenberg Mm -hmm. he he can't help but not put his worldview in this movie and again george lucas i think is a little darker than people give him credit for if you watch his non-star wars movies like fx whatever it is um his first one Oh, THX. One THX, which no one liked. And Coppola had to like defend him <laughs> from everyone. Um, or American Graffiti, which ends on a really dark note. Half of them just like die. Yeah. Like you like, and I know this guy was lost in Vietnam. You're like, mm-hmm. cool. Um, so I think that would have mel- melded, but the creature and the body, I think, yeah, you could not have kept David Cronenberg's very dark, yeah. pessimistic and worldview the- out of out of Return of the Jedi, which would have been fascinating. Yeah, and just like and just like Lynch, Cronenberg has zero interest and is kind of like, why does he want me? Yeah. And then just goes on goes on to go make Videodrome, which is like could not be a diff- more different movie than well, <laughs> Return of the yeah. Jedi. You see, George Lucas is the movie, the directors he's keeping an eye on, which are David Lynch and, D- and David Cronenberg. These are directors who are starting to hit. Um, because I think yeah. he watched Elephant Man and went, "That's an amazing movie," and Elephant mm-hmm. Man is like a second movie, goddamn masterpiece, and. Um, same with um, David Cronenberg. So you can tell the movies he's watching, but I think he watched uh, Richard Muckin's, um Eye of the Needle and like that movie, which is a movie I yes. years ago. And I remember really liking yes. it. It's a really solid World War II thriller, uh, domestic thriller. And like Keith Sullivan is just sleeping with everyone. Uh, not Keith Sullivan, his dad, Don, uh, Donald Sullivan. Uh, Donald, sleeping, yeah. Yeah, they're sleeping with everyone. But it's... Um, but I also think George looks at the end of the day knew he had he had to have someone who he could control a little bit more. It's yeah. like um, not on uh, Field of Dreams because that was definitely a director's project. But you can tell the movies where Kevin Costner has had a little bit more control yeah. over his director. And same with um, certain movie stars, especially uh, Stallone, big on this. Yeah, like, okay, with Kevin well, Costner, I know Kevin Reynolds and him. That was it. Like, is it like Waterworld and Prince with of Thieves. Um, Prince Did of Thieves, he, yeah. and then Fandango was the first one they did. So it was interesting because it, it's the same sort of relationship. And it's interesting because uh, Marquand was was pretty political and was like interest. He had a lot of interest that vibed well with George Lucas at the time. So mm. he was really into the allegories, and so I think that's why he and Lucas got along or or initially uh, started the partnership, but then he did go on to say after the fact, like Lucas was still very hands-on and he described it like 
um, directing King Lear with William Shakespeare in the other room. Yeah. He says, he says, it's still a little bit of extra pressure that you don't, you don't want when something is supposed to be your vision. Yes. He's still looking at the dailies every day going, oh, so what about this? Um, yeah. But no, this, I mean, yeah. this is very strong on allegory. I mean, the first Star Wars, I think is much more straightforward. It is much more the Joseph Campbell mm-hmm. hero's journey with some Kur- Kur- Kurosawa thrown in and you get Again, a movie you would have walked into 1977 and then walked out not the same. Like, yeah, that yeah. Opening, and then of course, yeah, that opening scene alone just would have been like, whoa. And yeah. then, and then we talk about franchises all the time now, where it's like, as soon as the first movie hits, it's like, well, where's the sequel? When's the sequel coming? So that's what studios all want to do nowadays, especially when something has a budget over a certain level and there's like IP attached to it or whatever yeah. the case. But back in 1980, it was like. Well, a sequel isn't promised, but now that we've gotten Star Wars as a hit, uh, Lucas like bankrolls the sequel, and essentially Empire does what a you know it, it creates the franchise, it creates the blockbuster sequel, while still being this thing that is like so cinematic and so layered and so I mean it does, I mean so many things are compared to it nowadays when you have that second entry that ends on a dark note and you're like what is happening? It's, it's like this is. This is our Empire Strikes Back. And so for those two things to do that, now you get the third film in the in the the trilogy. And it's like so many of those nowadays, it's the the third installment in the trilogy is like the weird one, or it's the one where the filmmaker gets to kind of like they're like, okay, now I'm gonna explore, I'm gonna see where I can test my boundaries and get a little weird. Like uh there's like the search for Spock or Dream Warriors or Army of Darkness or Logan. And they're really like, okay, we're going to do something different here. And I feel like that's where, you know, they had a goal. He had to land the plane on the story of Luke and Anakin. Yes. But but they were able to get a little bit weird. And that's what I, I liked about this. Well, no, I mean, Jedi has a really hard job. I mean, one, you're coming after, not necessarily the movie, because I think Empire has probably aged People forget that it didn't make as much money initially as the first Star Wars. Like, there's always been a, a depreciation with with these movies, which I think studios forget. It's like, no, they're gonna make more money. No, they really do. Like, it's not thing. But you have this ending of Empire when, um, out of nowhere, um, Darth Vader drops his bombshell of like Luke in that very James Earl Jones way. Luke, I am your father. I think it's the line. I think it gets misquoted quite a bit, but essentially, yeah. I am your father. So. One, they have to deal with that. Two, they have to deal with um, Han Solo being frozen in carbonite. Um, so there's a couple, of, and the Empire has won this round. So they're kind of back. It's all the good kind of thing. They've kind of gone back to the beginning a little bit in terms of where the rebels are, in terms of having to try yeah. and fight back against the, the Empire. Now, of course, this means blowing up the goddamn freaking Death Star again. But... <laughs> Yeah, to their so, credit, I I yeah. love the that sort of image that we start with in this of the half built Jedi, uh, yes, half built Death Star, and just the sort of skeleton of it that we eventually find out is fully operational. But just you know the the Star Destroyer uh, moving towards it over Endor, and that's just like great shot to start the film with. It's um, an amazing. But, the fact that it works as a moon as well, I think, is so freaking mm-hmm. cool. Um, yeah. But no, they've got a few things that they need to tidy. And the first thing yeah. is Han. Yeah. So you and, get this, yeah, very weird first act that has nothing to do with the movie that is going to become after. 
Yeah. And it's great. It's like, for me, I think this is one of the ultimate like cold opens when you have a, a scene that just sort of like tidies up things and kind of moves on. George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan were battling with each other because Lawrence Kasdan wanted to kill off Han Solo. He said, we got to kill someone off. We got to raise the stakes. And George Lucas, of course, is like, he's like, no, these are my babies. Like, no, <laughs> like we can't kill anyone off. And Lawrence Kasdan's like, trust me. And Marquand has to come in and sort of be the mediator. Yes. And at the same time, you know, we're, we know coming into return that Han's role is going to get diminished a little bit it's reduced a little bit in this movie but i love the story when marquand is meeting the cast and everyone for the first time and harrison comes up to him and the first thing harrison says to me is he's like i want to die you got to kill me off in this thing he's been trying to die in these movies for so long and they finally did it with and he's like i just want to die Ford has become the superstar at this point who's sort of like eclipsed Star Wars in a way because he's in yes. Jones now. Yeah. And he's, and he's uh, Rick Deckard. And so he's got all this stuff going on for him in addition to that. But he, Lucas he's is like, no. He's goddamn tied to this goddamn space wizard story uh, he cannot get away from even now. <laughs> yeah, Lucas is like, no. It's like, I I want you to, to see this through. And so he just like kept him in it but it's yeah very nicely tied together i love that the whole image of c-3po and r2d2 kind of approaching jabba's palace is such a clear homage to uh kurosawa's hidden fortress which it is you know lucas has talked about this many times that he's like kurosawa was like this big inspiration for him especially on um the la the second two mm. uh star wars films but just having that, and then also the fact that it's sort of obvious once you've watched it a few times, but that Jabba the Hutt is basically Sydney Greenstreet from Casablanca. He is. <laughs> just, it's just oh, that's giant. Such a good point. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. That, that blew well, my mind. Slightly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So these are these are these great like homages that he's sneaking into this weird alien movie, and I just love love that Lucas pulled that off. Um, what going back and watching it now with what is the special edition version i'm actually surprised that they replaced the original band which is um size noodles from the java's palace because the original was like this really cool like puppeteering there was a lot you know a lot to it and for some reason like lucas was just like no we're going special effects i'm gonna bring and it's just like you know i can appreciate both versions because i was young enough at the time of the special editions that i i i don't have negative feelings about it like some people do but it's just like th the puppetry in this original is is so strong i just i i think that he he had it sitting with him too long and it's like you get inside your own head when it comes to some things especially as a filmmaker i mean filmmakers are famous for going back and rejigging because it's their thing George Lucas more than most. Now, I think I don't love that song because I love the puppetry and the fact that you can still yeah. see the original puppetry around the edges of it. And the song yeah. feels really out of place. Like It feels yeah. like it was done in the 1990s, not yeah. 1983. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this bit. And yeah, the rest of the puppetry is so strong. Like it's, it's kind of amazing. Where they went from like in the first cantina scene in the first one, we have like Wolf Guy, because that's the only, I don't like you either. Um, it's where they just had random masks that the, yeah. um, uh, whatever studio, they were Pine Studios. Uh, I think. Um, ILM. ILM had lying yeah. around, literally had lying yeah. around. They just put them on. Okay, you're a werewolf. 
um, yeah. to this much more thought out kind of Jabba the Hutt, Jabba the Hutt's, uh, Jabba's um, palace. And um, then I'm still getting confused with space balls. Sorry. I sort of really ran a similar story. <laughs> this really well thought out world. Every sort of creature is kind of thing. So I do find that not all um, of the special effects parts annoy me. Mm -hmm. Like I don't mind the ending. Um, but that song, I think, still pulls me out of the movie a little bit. Only because you can still see the puppetry around the edges. And I'm, yeah. like, I, I'm, the kid of, I'm a child of the Muppets. I'm a child of Star Wars. I like puppetry um, yeah. and I can see it there and it's not quite melding with the special effects as it, cause it's just plonked in the middle um, yeah. for me a little, but it doesn't take away from the whole entire movie. Yeah. Last year I went to a Star Wars celebration in Anaheim uh, and they, it's a big convention where they have all sorts of panels and things and it's all Star Wars. It's the nerdiest thing ever, but it was great. And there was a panel I went to uh, that was talking about the creatures of, of Return of the Jedi. And they, they really highlighted the Jabba's palace scene uh, because it's the 40th anniversary of the of the film. And they got into talking about how they chose all these different random creatures. And basically it was like every, every creative on their team at ILM, it was just like, okay, you pick something. What do you want to do? And he's like, he's like, I want to have a guy that looks like a camel with a head. And I want to, I, we want a guy that has like lights all over him. And we want to have a guy and each person got to kind of like create their own thing because they needed as many as possible. And they would come up with something and be like, uh, you know what? That one doesn't work. Let's go back to the drawing board. But it was just like a, just a smorgasbord of just crazy creative ideas of, and Lucas just kind of let them run with it. And they use some of them for the Jabba's palace and they use some of them elsewhere, but it was just, it was really, really cool. And I, I like the way that, um, that kind of came together. No, it looks really cool. It's just this whole thing of just creativity. Though watching it this time around, because I knew I was going to uh, be talking about it. Did the whole rescuing of Han go according to plan or did keep things messing up so they just had to send more <laughs> and more people in to try and rescue him? Like they send this in the droids, like, yeah. they send in Leia and um, what's his name? And then Luke has to finally come in and everything's just messing up. Mess it's just like... That, yeah, I, I was just curious. What do you think? This was all according yeah. to plan, or did this just? Um, I think the plan was always to have Luke. I, th I think the plan was we're all going in at different times, and yeah. the droids are going to be a distraction, and Leia is going to be a distraction, and I and we're going to all get in there, and a few of you are going to be like captured, quote unquote, and I'm going to be the one that get, comes in at the, the end, and I'm going to okay. we're going to work together because, in my opinion, like R2D2 is the character that more than any character in, in Star Wars always seems to have it together. Like, and C-3PO is the one that somehow Does has not, not been given information. <laughs> so when they're like, they're like, you can have these droids as your slaves. And R2-3PO like, is like, no, it's the wrong message. And it was just like, yes. No, like, I have a sneaky suspicion 3CPO would be the one who just blurred out the plants right away. He'd be just yeah, like, oh, yeah. this is what's going to happen. Just like yeah. overly <laughs> trusting character, like so naive and like... Yes. So yeah, I mean that was that was one of those things. And then and then Leia coming in. I love Leia's like sort of bounty hunter costume. That the I only know that it's called Boosh because uh growing up like in the comics and the the I had the okay. action figure and everything. And so her name her name is the bounty hunter was Boosh. And basically the voice that is Leia's voice in the costume is um the the woman's name is Pat Welsh. And I don't know if you know this or not, but she also pay, played the voice of E.T. 
It does sound very ET. I was wondering why I knew that. You yeah. said that I knew that name. Um, no, I mean she looks so tiny. I mean she's my height, so she's not yeah. tiny. But when she's standing next to um, Chewie, she is coming up to his hip. Like I yeah. think they're just trying to emphasize how tall Chewie is, which I don't think even Pe- uh, Peter Mayhew was. Yeah, Peter yeah. Mayhew. Yeah. Peter Mayhew was Chewie. I don't think he was even that tall. He was a very tall man, but um no but it's just sort of funny because it's like the conversation luke has to have with leia before they go and now right you're going to get caught by Cho. you're going to get caught by um java he is going to put you in a really scandalous bikini and you are going to be changed <laughs> so um you're cool you're cool okay yeah cool. we're done take one, like going, take one for the team <laughs> take one for the team <laughs> and she's like, I'm like all right yeah poor i mean i i i love carrie fisher so freaking much but she yeah I mean, the fact that she said, oh, yeah, by the way, I slept with Harrison Ford and then sadly passed away way too soon. I still think is like the biggest boss moment ever. But I'm just like, you would not have been able to eat for like a month before shooting those bikini scenes. I mean, mean, and she famously has said like she was she was criticized by producers in the studio. Like you're not, you know, you need to get lose some weight and things like that. So she really went through it, too, not to mention. And this is something that like I didn't realize until like more recently watching it is like. All the scenes, the scene that she's in the bikini, she's basically not talking the whole time. No. And she and does get so, the moment with the guns at the end, but she is. Yeah. She's yeah. kind of like, you know, but, but in the Leia's a badass across the board. So it's like, this was just like, I think she knew it was happening the whole time. And so I always say, like, she, she, like you said, took one for the team. Yeah. She has talked about how it wasn't a pleasant experience because you can see her ribs. Like, she is yeah. thin. Like, and no. she would have had pressure of like, hey, you're going to be in a bikini. You can't, you need to lose weight. And she has said how she felt very exposed in those moments, which, yeah, you're no. not wearing much. Um, but that did, of course, start quite a few fantasies for a lot of men and women, <laughs> boys and girls, um, watching her in that in that scene. But, yeah, she had <laughs> just the conversation. Yeah, yeah, this is going to happen. Okay, you're cool, cool. Let's go. She's like, what? Um, yeah, she is such yeah. a badass. And the fact that she doesn't get to speak that much, except she does get behind the guns and start shooting people. I'm like, okay, yeah. cool. Players love- still, still kick ass. They haven't completely yeah. sidelined her. Yeah. I love the moment when when she unfreezes Han out of the carbonite and is basically like, who is that? And she gets to take off the mask and say, someone who loves you. Because the the John Williams score just like swells in that moment in just like the perfect way and every time i go back it's like yeah that's it's, that's nostalgia it's just paradise. pure it's pure nostalgia paradise um but i also love the line when um they're on the vessel going over the scar pit no whatever that yeah. creature is um, oh, the yeah the the sarlacc yeah so that um i'm just gonna be messing up star wars so yeah i know no i'm irritating I'm, I'm irritating everyone at this point um but the whole thing when Lando's being pulled in and Han's trying to shoot and he's like, don't shoot. You're going to yes. hit me. It's like, no, no, my yes. eyesight's a lot better. <laughs> yeah. And this, and this gives me my, like my favorite Harrison Ford line of the movie is when um, they're flying out to the pit and Luke says, I used to live here, you know, and Han says, you're going to die here, you know? Yeah. Convenient. <laughs> yeah. Convenient. Um, yeah. I mean, admittedly, I agree with Harrison because he has spoken about it, that he did feel sidelined and the fact, that he just also wanted them to kill Han Solo. Yeah. Um, and they wouldn't do it. Um, he didn't quite know what to do in that movie a bit because he yeah. wasn't, I mean, he's Harrison Ford, he's Indiana Jones. But at this point, he's the movie star and not, and this movie has to focus on Luke. That yeah. is what this yeah. movie has to do. There's no way you cannot have 
the ending of Empire without them going, well, this movie's going to be about the relationship between um, Luke and Vader. It has to right. be. And I think Harrison Ford kind of knew that going in. And I think he felt a little bit, okay, so I'm just Leia's boyfriend, which is fine. Yeah. I like him just being it, Leia's boyfriend. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it works. And it's something where they almost lost Han. And so now they're, now they're at a point where it's like, you can't have the same kind of like antagonistic relationship they had in Empire, which was like, gold i love the scene in empire one of my favorite star wars scenes ever is when um han and leia are just like arguing and going at it um they're in hoth and they're in that that hallway and she's like she's like i just assumed kiss a wookie and he's like i could arrange that he could use a good kiss and that that whole scene is like one of my favorite parts of their relationship and you can't have that here anymore because he's her boyfriend he's almost died and all this but it's it still serves a purpose because i feel like now they've gotten to this point where it's like they actually have to to show each other that they love each other. And so there's this great callback when they get to Endor and Leia gets hit by like a blast or something. And Han's like, are you okay? And she's she's like on the ground and the stormtrooper comes up behind him. And she has and the she, gun that he can't he see. Has the oh, gun. It's so good. And, and he says, I love you finally. And she says, I know. And then she just blasts the guy. It was like the perfect callback that just is like, bookends their their relationship there perfectly i mean it's perfect and it also kind of the whole thing about oh you love luke and she's like yes he's like well when he comes back i'm not going to stand in your way like i'm not going to i realize if you want to be with him she's like ah he's my brother and yeah yeah. (laughs) i'm like those two have kept anyway that's this to show that they don't actually have a plan they just do something and then they have to react to it so yeah um, because everyone everyone has a plan i'm like no 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 there's no plan no, you could have a whole acting class off of the expressions that flood Harrison Ford's face when she says that he's my brother, because he goes through about 10 different successive Emotions. reactions yes. when he finally realizes and lands on this grin of like, oh, wait, I get the girl. Yeah, I'm going to get the girl. Like, so, yeah, that was that was perfect at the end. But um, but oh, but um, back on the uh, the Sarlacc pit. Curious what you felt now that we're in like 2023 and we have like the book of Boba Boba Fett because Boba Fett's this character that is built up as like sort of this badass bounty hunter in Empire Strikes Back, then gets three years or whatever of action figures and t-shirts and lunchboxes and people are like Boba Fett's the biggest badass and then like gets dispatched almost as like a goof in this movie. And I know that, you know, you know, hindsight 2020. Now we get to see Boba Fett actually gets like a full story arc. And I just think it's, I just think it's funny the way it happened. And like, maybe we should have, maybe we should have thought of how we did this a little better, but. Well, no, I mean, it speaks <laughs> to the fact that people think people, the Star Wars had a plan. It didn't. Like, yeah. I don't even think when they were making, George was making the first one, he would go Empire. Okay. I'm going to have, this is the father. This is the, the then the sister. And then, everything like that yeah but i think this speaks to why this is such a weird movie to watch now i'm an adult when i'm a kid i could just watch return of the jedi and enjoy it now yeah. i've got all this backstory in the back of my head because i've seen most of um uh what's uh timur morrison and the fact that oh now, the book of boba fett yeah book of boba fett and now the fact that he's also a clone yeah like you yeah. know all the um stormtroopers are clones of timur morrison and yeah. it, yeah, we're just like, oh yeah, there's all my voice. Like, I think we're which watching. I which I like. Yeah. I you know I like the fact that now he's got this story. Now he's got. I enjoyed the book of Boba Fett. 
anything that gets to more Morrison more work, I'm in favor of. Uh, so just like great, great to see that. But it's just it's a, a funny little thing that pops in your head when you're watching this time of like, oh, that's Boba Fett. But that was it's, so quick. What happened? But yeah, it's kind of yeah. <laughs> it, but it's kind of this weird thing of so much has been built around this. This kind of I mean, if Field of Dreams is a book about nostalgia. Return of the Jedi is a nostalgic object. Like it's, yeah. plus it's got so many things added to it. Yeah. Like I still yeah. remember, it's probably a bit of cultural cringe, but in uh, the Clone Wars, when Tamara Morrison turned up in his kid and you've got that, hey, dad, someone's at the door. I'm like, oh my fucking God. Like it's <laughs> just a, <laughs> the very Kiwi accent. I'm just like, oh, okay, yeah. okay, here we go. Um, but the, beside the fact that they are also filmed in Australia, so you have all these great Australian actors in there and all that kind of thing as well. But it is, um, yeah, it can't, it doesn't exist on its own anymore. And I think even though it was a sequel in 1983, I think it could exist on its own to a certain extent. Like it had its own thing. Now yeah. we've got the Ewok movies. We've got the Ewok cartoon. We have, um, and I'm saying this from a person who didn't live in the lore of the three Star Wars movies. So I was never mm -hmm. reading the comics or anything like that. So I just had yeah. the movies. Um, now I have the Mandalorian. I have Ashoka. Um, Ahsoka, yes. Ahsoka. Um, All of these things are now also gauged off of the original trilogy in terms of the timeline, too. So it's like, these are all things that are happening right after Return of the Jedi. So it's like, oh, that's right. That's right. We ended that off. And then now this. And even in like the sequel trilogy, that was all like, okay, this is what happened after Jedi. Yes. And it's kind of every single time me and my partner watch this stuff, because my partner loves the Star Wars Disney shows. So every single okay, yeah, where are we in the timeline again? And it gets a little bit, um, so yeah, so I can't nowadays, I mean, now I'm seeing on Twitter, Andy dissect the back flip thing that um, Hayden Christensen does as Anakin Skywalker thing. And I'm like, it's, there's such a minute detail when you're describing certain aspects of Star yes. Wars that I get a little bit lost with, but I know that they're there. And so I'm looking at, jedi a lot differently now like it's not yeah. mm -hmm. it's not just a movie it's something else i think is what i'm trying exactly. to say yeah and yeah and it's it's interesting to even think about seeing it for the first time when no one had seen it before because yes. we grew uh, i i grew up in a time especially where no i am your father was like i think i think i may have already known that i i knew that Darth Vader obviously was his father the first time I saw it because that's a key part of the story. That is so I, I never just had information that. I have always known. I don't remember and, the first time I found out. I was going to ask you actually, but I don't remember yeah. finding out that piece of information. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's even there's great videos on YouTube you can watch like there are compilations of like parents showing their kids Empire Strikes Back for the first time. Yeah. Um, during that reveal and the kids just like their jaws dropping and you're like, oh, to be young again, you know, like to no, it, to. My favorite Simpsons joke of one of my five many, but one of my favorites is uh, it's a flashback episode, and Homer is in March of just gonna see Empire Strikes Back, and he goes, "Who would have thought that Darth Vader would have been Luke Skywalker's father?" And you just hear a guy like, "Way to ruin the picture for me." Yes. So I mean that that was something that they even put this whole scene in the so when Luke goes back to Dagobah, the, the swamp planet, to visit Yoda. Yeah. That that was all put in there because. Lucas was worried that people would not believe that Darth Vader actually was Luke's father, well, that, well, that people would question it. 
Yeah, well, what, no, wasn't that one of the things? Because I remember people talking, because it's a very different space for people a little bit older than, say, me, who watched the 77, then watched 80. Um, yeah. And they weren't, they had to wait. I remember someone talking about, say, they had to wait until 83, three years later after Empire, to find out if that revelation that Darth Vader gave Luke was actually true. Because it's just yeah. like, Luke, I'm in your father, boom, end movie. It's pretty much that. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of scenes, but it's pretty much that's that, that's the end that's the end and yeah. though i do love how yoda would rather die than have the conversation with luke <laughs> i mean i know technically he's already dying but it feels like Yoda's just like oh crap okay no i'm just gonna die like i, I do not want to have this conversation but like with yeah. you, but you're insisting yeah. on it and i'm like i up and die so i don't have to talk about yeah. this um yeah and it- yeah it, and it was just like i i get it he, he said they needed someone who was sort of trustworthy um that the, the audience would say okay that person yoda knows what he's talking about it's his father and all this but the thing i loved about that whole scene when yoda yoda's talking to luke is the juxtaposition between the way yoda's talking to luke and the way that the emperor addresses luke's journey Yes. And how Yoda is very gentle and supportive with how he's imparting all this this important wisdom with Luke because he knows if he's too forceful or if he pushes him in one way or the other, he might lose Luke. He's a, yeah. Luke is at a very like vulnerable place. His father is trying to pull him over, and the Emperor is the total opposite. It's like everything is you must or you should give in Let to your anger. Let the hate through you. Let, yeah. yeah, everything is like he will not accept anything else from Luke. So just very interesting the two. Uh, extremes there that we and see with Luke. Plus watching it now, having seen the prequels, it has so much more weight because you've seen Anakin um, go through this exact journey and choose the dark side. Like he let the right. anger and... Um, right. And even though, yeah, kind of agree, we, well, we don't really need any movie, but it's kind of like, yeah. well, I already know what's going to happen with Anakin. He's going to dumb the thing and go, no! Yeah. Um, but, but also, like yeah. what you we were saying with Field of Dreams is like Luke knows what happened with his father. So he's he's very cautious because he doesn't want to become his father in that way. He just wants to save his father. And that is the whole thing he has with um, this movie is he's got this piece of information. He realizes it's true. Now he has to make the decision of do I save my father or do I murder my father? And it's, right. it's kind of very... Um, classical tragedy in that respect is if do I have to I murder him so I don't become him or can I save him and actually have a relationship with him now he gets right. Star Wars is really good at having its cake and eating it too especially with say the Han Solo killing him but not killing him mm-hmm. right um and he does the same thing I mean he's not the one who kills him it's the emperor who does but he gets a he gets a relationship with him he saves him but he also has to die like Darth Vader is not right. getting out of this movie without dying that is just not gonna happen he's done too much it's kind of like the old uh movie rules you need to be punished for what you've you've done so it's kind of inevitable that it's going to happen this way but because star wars has always been good at having its cake and eating too you get all scenarios wrapped into one yeah and i and i love i love that in that scene when when yoda's talking to him about the emperor and darth vader him sort of (laughs) A lot of people don't like take this for granted, but like the puppetry when like Yoda's like shuffling over and getting into bed and all this stuff, you're like, this is like on the on par with like Kermit the Frog riding a bike for me. Yeah, just like that's why you get Jim. That's why you get Jim Henson um, Company. Though it's 
it's that's why you do because he was the best his company was the best to ever do it yeah yeah why and wouldn't lucas, you? yeah lucas tried to get frank oz nominated for an oscar for empire <laughs> strikes back and and they couldn't because they weren't like they're were like no we we don't we don't it's a, nominate it's a, it's a puppetry performance. yeah. performances. Yeah. So they're like, no, but I don't blame him because it's just like, this is an all time great performance. And it's like the reason why years and years later, even like when we look at it, this, the puppetry that still stands up, it's the reason why they brought the puppet back for the last Jedi. Why yeah. um, Ryan Johnson did that. It's like, there's just nothing that like matches how it looks. It's great. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mentioned it before, but as soon as you make Yoda CGI, he loses something. Right. I mean, yeah, it's right. still Frank Oz doing the voice. Like, that's yeah. still important. Yeah, he sounds a little bit like Fozzy. It's like, oh, shoot, what was I watching? And, um, oh, American Werewolf in London, and Frank Oz pops up. I'm like, that man sounds like Fozzy Bear. Oh, that's because it's Frank Oz. Okay, I'm with it now. Um, yeah. uh, but Admiral Akbar does yeah. not work if it's a CGI, like, giant fish head guy. And we've like, seen it before. We've seen him CGI in the prequels. Doesn't work. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's a reason why it's a trap is so friggin' iconic and it's because yeah. of Akbar and the yeah. puppetry and the, the, yeah, it's, and there's a thing Marquand. where, yeah. yeah. Marquand was, you, a lot of people don't know this, Marquand and George Lucas are like going through the creature shop and they're trying to figure out Akbar and George Lucas is like, you know, they're going back and forth and George is like, well, you're the director. You pick what he's going to look like. And Marquand's like, no, you created Star Wars. You decided. Finally, Mark Juan sees the big, uh, bug-eyed fish head, and he's like, he's like that one. That's that's gonna be our Admiral Akbar. And it's funny because he goes on saying later that basically, um, he wanted to tell kids that good people aren't necessarily good-looking people, and bad people aren't necessarily ugly people. Yes. And that was his sort of his reasoning behind, behind the the Akbar thing and how I... he looked. And so, yeah. Yeah, I love how Akbar is just in not even scenes. He shows up twice in this movie. Like this is the power of Star yeah. Wars. I mean, Boba Fett yeah. shows up. Actually, no, Boba Fett showed up in uh the Christmas special or yeah. the holiday special. Like he wasn't mm -hmm. even in. People saw him on a dinosaur and went, that's cool. Um yeah. so that's what I love about Boba Fett. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, the, the Christmas special is wild. I kind of love it, but it is bonkers. Um and Akbar is in two moments. And one of them, he has a completely just iconic line of, it's a trap. And yeah. I don't, it's, when you watch it, you realize why it captured so many people, people's imagination. So anything Star Wars, there has to be like an Akbar creature pop up at yeah. some point. And you're always like, oh, Akbar. It's like how, um, but even though it's not Akbar, it's like when Mandalorian first showed and they had, yeah. it's a dumb name, Grogu. I still call him Baby Yoda because that is the example of that race we have is Yoda. It was Baby Yoda for like a season. And yeah, yeah it was, <laughs> um, it's a phenomenon. And again, Baby Yoda is mostly puppetry. Like my favorite story ever is um, they had the puppet, they were moving around, they had Vorna Herzog, God bless the man. And yeah. they were just having a conversation um, about, oh yeah, we might CGI this guy. And um Werner Herzog, don't be cowards. Like, use the puppet. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. And I don't even think Disney was caught off guard about how popular that character is, but I think there is a magic to puppetry that is something like 
It's tactile. I, it's tactile. You can touch it. You can see it and feel it. Yeah, but also people talk about when they're interviewing, when you see it, when someone's interviewing a Muppet, like on a late show and it's Al, it's Alma or it's mm-hmm. Kermit, they're looking at the puppet. They're not looking at the guy doing the words. Yeah. And you, the guy can be, like I've seen Avenue Q, and you get to the stage where the guy who's doing the puppetry and doing the voice is right beside it, you're still looking at the puppet. There's a, yeah. there's a magic that that is a real creature that you are looking at. And I think I know people who have interviewed the Muppets have said the same thing. It's like, no, I know there's a guy below there and he's doing all of it. I can see him, but yet I'm talking to Kermit. Yeah. It's the reason why, why when Jim Henson is with Ralph, the dog on Arsenio hall and he's being interviewed and the, the interview is all Ralph and you're just like, you are a wizard. How yeah. are you doing this? Like, it, and it, and it works like a regular interview and it's not, it's, it's amazing. And so, yeah, there, I mean, they brought the, the Mon Calamari, um, Akbar's his species. They brought them back for a Mandalorian because it was a, it was a popular design. And it's just like, there are things like that from this movie that just worked so well. And were so tactile that it's like, yeah, it's, it's better now. It's the best kind of special effect you can you can find, you know? Yeah, because people are interacting with them and they are looking at them like it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yes, George Lucas was the one who pioneered the whole CGI green screen thing. So mm-hmm. when you're not necessarily interacting with, and I think one of the things cactus had to learn very quickly is like, oh, okay, I mean, I'm still amazed that Bob Hoskins gave the performance he did in Roger Rabbit because he was not talking to a rabbit. He was talking no. to a tennis ball like, or something. Like he yeah. wasn't... Um, but it is, yeah, there's something tactile. And so when you change, even when you change Yoda CGI, it's like, mm, it's not Yoda. That's cartoon Yoda. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. And because I grew up with, even Yoda's not that much in the series. Like he's, he's more in the series as thing, but in the original yeah. Empire and in he's one scene each. And yeah. very important role though. Very important role because he is yeah. um, the teacher. He is the one that's going to teach Luke and, um, though I do have to like how um, Obi Wan Kenobi has to slink through his Force Ghost and go, yeah, goes, well, technically, <laughs> Darth Vader did kill Anakin yeah. Skywalker from a certain point of view, and all Luke from a certain say, point of view, from a certain point of view, that is even Luke is like that is bullshit. Sorry, he's, sorry, Obi, <laughs> come he's on, like, screw you, Obi Wan, <laughs> from a certain point of view, son of a certain point of view, he's god damn it, um. Which is a very Obi Wan thing to do. It's like, no, no, I did not know Darth Vader. That was yeah. <laughs> not Anakin. Like, no, yeah. same person. Um, yeah. But it's yeah. There's this beautiful tactility, and I love, as I sort of said, um, Jedi is all. I mean, they're in the. I don't know where they filmed this, but they're obviously in a wooded area, especially for Andor. Yeah, the redwoods in. Uh, redwoods. They're in the California redwoods up uh, near the Bay Area. And this is like maybe one of my favorite planets in all the it Star is. Wars movies. Me too. I love Andor. Like when yeah. the show Andor, I don't think it's called Andor. The the, the prison one came out with um, yeah. Luna. Yeah, Andor. Yeah, Andor. Andor. I thought it was going to be about the planet Andor, and I was <laughs> actually so much. Oh, they're doing Andor, and then when I saw it was Andor, I'm like, oh, that's not as interesting. There's no yeah, Ewoks. Okay, you're like, I want the Ewok <laughs> TV series. They're gonna. I want the Ewok TV. Series. <laughs> which, 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 which actually, Davis back in the suit again let's go <laughs> i know i know i mean it's like so warwick davis needs to be given more credit for coming in as like a 12 year old and giving life to this character when he wasn't even supposed to be in it 
to begin yet. with. I, yeah. Apparently, like Kenny da- uh, Davis was supposed to be in, and he got like food poisoning or something, which happens on a lot of George Lucas sets. Apparently, um, it really does. They yeah, really do. You not- always hear stories about people getting food poisoning. Bad, and stuff, bad health so. and safety when it comes to food. Apparently, yeah. Yeah. So so he comes in and with almost no training and just creates one of the most memorable characters in Star Wars. I, I remember like. Yeah, I was on board from the get-go with Wicket and the whole, you know, Davis actually said the what he brought to the character was he was like studying the mannerisms of his own dog and how his dog would interact with him. And that was how he played Wicket with Carrie Fisher. I love the scenes with um, him and Carrie Fisher. I mean, Carrie Fisher looks bemused, because she, which I think she probably was. I think she's even said, look, I was opposite, I was trying to episode trying to act opposite a 12 year old in a bear suit. Like this is not yeah. how I saw my life going. Um, yeah. And she looks, which fits the character. She's like, you're a teddy bear. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the way he's got like, he's doing the growl and it's just, he's hopping around. It is so good. And the way they bring um, the Ewoks to life and their society and how they're actually little vicious buggers. Like they will, I mean, I've heard criticisms that it's not believable that the Ewoks beat the capture uh luke and um han um on Chewie and how they beat the um stormtroopers at the end and it's just like no they would this is their home it's their territory bringing back the um vietnam metaphor yeah the americans went into a place where they did not belong and tried to fight someone on their home turf where they knew what they were doing they knew this jungle they knew this land when you have people, so it's, they were fighting, um, well, the fact that Vietnam was putting in kids who did not want to be there in the first place who were not soldiers, and same with the, um, Viet Cong were putting in children who should not have been there. But that's beside the point. Um, it, it's kind of this, yeah, no, this is their home turf. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. It's their rules. You have to abide by their rules, and the Empire does not, famously does not do that. So they're right. going to get rocks thrown at them and stormtroopers have no balance and <laughs> no one can shoot they were supposed to be <laughs> They were originally supposed to be Wookiees when yeah. they were planning it. And then Lucas was like, well, no, you know, Chewbacca is smart enough to fly the Millennium Falcon. So we need to have them be a little bit more primitive than that. So that was like yeah. his pushback. And I don't know. I just, I, for me, it was like the more weird, crazy aliens, the better. So I was like, I don't care if it's not e- e- Wookiees. I like the fact that it was e- Ewoks and that we got something different. And they they're not all just winning right you know right no. away. Anyway, you have Ewoks dying. You know that was that was that like a, a moment a for me. Breaking moment. I don't think I realized this until an adult. But when they're trying to fight the um, Chicken Walker, and that they get blown up, and the one gets up and just tries to shake his friend who's died. It is such a heartbreaking moment. It's kind of like. Oh, these guys are losing. It's not the completely cartoonish. Oh, Ewoks are fine. No, they're dying in this battle, and this is a community being because um, they were largely ignored because the Empire looked at these things and went, "Well, they're teddy bears," and you should not underestimate a teddy bear with a spear. Right. Right. Ever. I thought it was good to like have yeah. something where the, they subverted their expectations of of the whole race, and they were like, yes. "Okay, this this species of aliens, they're you know." They they got it together more than because we're on their turf, like you said, we're on their home turf. So I I thought that was interesting. I you know, one of the things we haven't talked about yet. This is sort of like the little the little side note I wanted to bring up was was the Ewok movies because you said you weren't sure if you had 
you know, seen them in a long time. So how did they hold up and things like that? For me, um, the Caravan of Courage and the Battle of Endor were like super formative because I saw them right after Return of the Jedi. Me too. And I was, I was just like, I love the things that would like circle Jedi or circle Star Wars in that way. These cool little stories that I feel like you could watch separately, standalone. They both work very episodic. Uh, they aren't reliant on the Star Wars trilogy. And they are some of the last great like stop motion work that ILM did in the 80s. Oh, there's wow. These, there's, yeah, like the, the stuff that they did in there was incredible stop motion. They had these awesome matte paintings, which... Which another thing that we we haven't really gotten into yet with Jedi is like the use of matte paintings in this film are incredible. All the stuff on Endor, the wide shots, oh. the stuff, the stuff when Lando and Han are in that hangar and they're talking before he takes the Millennium Falcon off, and then Han heads to Endor. Beautiful matte painting there. Just you know, they, these were things that were throughout those Ewok movies and were done extremely well. Burl Ives is the narrator. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I kind of love these is things. Walter Brimley in like one of them? Yeah, Wilford Brimley is in the the Battle for Endor. And okay, yeah. He's incredible in that. He's yeah. the one with the little uh, sort of speedster sidekick, Teak. Yeah. Like this little creature yeah. that's like, yeah. Love that. Love love that, like you're saying, they are in introducing some sort of mystical elements outside of the Force that were kind of like Willow-esque. Yes, very and Willow-esque. So, yeah, so I, I love that. And my my theory about uh, about how to show people Star Wars now. So, like, if you have kids that haven't seen any of the Star Wars movies, the the one I've got that's great is show them the Ewok movies first and don't say anything about the Star Wars movies. Wait a while, then show them the prequels, then the original trilogy, and then watch their brain explode when the Ewoks show up out of nowhere in Return of the Jedi. They're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's you a shared universe. <laughs> yeah, shared universe. And just, like, their heads will explode. Um, yeah, that that was one of the things I loved about those Ewok movies growing up. And just, yeah, they exist on their own. And they're these tidy, cool little, like, stories that um, allow you to explore this planet a little bit more. And that's one of the things that I think would be really cool if Disney did moving forward with, with Star Wars is, you know, create some new stories that are just kind of, like, off on their own. And we're on this planet or we're on that planet. And it's part of the Star Wars universe peripherally. Yes, I think that's what they're doing with, well, not really, because they have to bring in something that they know with um, yeah. the movies. So all the shows have been kind of a, a circling them. You can watch them on their own sometimes. Yeah. Um, though I've noticed that they're really leaning into the animated shows, which I have not seen yet. My partner yeah. started watching them after watching The Mandalorian because he was like, oh, they're characters from this and this and this, especially Ahsoka, which is apparently just a sequel to Rebels. So they are still sort of pulling off kind of thing, but you they are circling. But the thing with Disney is because everything has to be recognizable. They just can't do a, right. hey, here's a small kids movie from that's set around off the thing, though Ewoks are very recognizable. So yeah. I guess that's negating my point. They won't but take that risk anymore. <laughs> no, they won't take the risk. They will not, yeah, they will not do the Caravan of Courage or the Battle of Endor. They, mm. they, that is, um, that's too much of a, of a risk. But having yeah. something that people already recognize, like the the animated shows, I think they're like, okay, we can work with that because we know that yeah. it's a very it feels like almost like a cynical marketing thing because people will go back and watch it on Disney Plus, or people already know what it is and then continue watching the the thing. So right. yeah, they're never going to take that risk. But it's kind of amazing that most movies you don't know who did the matte painting, you don't know who did necessarily specific effects, but 
the guy, I mean, I watched that amazing documentary um, where I learned that Joe Johnston got a start on Star Wars. Um, makes, and with, oh, this makes, makes all the sense of the world now. Um, the series they did on ML, the Mad, Night Light Magic thing series of, of the birth oh, of yeah. that ILM. particular yeah. company. Oh, the birth of that company. And it was just amazing. I mean, Phil Tippett is a thing in his own right. Joe Johnston. There was so many guys. And they just went, okay, this guy did the matte painting. And everything because they just got these kids in there who had no right working on a movie like Star Wars to begin with. Because no one, I mean, George Lucas probably described this thing and they just went, what? Droids are doing what now? You got a bucket head? What? No, he's a samurai. What? Um, <laughs> so they were able to get these kids who just didn't know the rules before they could break them and they made some of the most amazing sound design. Um, again, yeah. I said how a TIE fighter moves, how an X-wing will move. Like it's a very distinctive way and they've learned that, okay, this is the signature, this is the way it moves. Um, the matte painting in these movies are right. gorgeous. Um, and they, yeah, they were kind of doing these things that I don't think they would have been allowed to do if they weren't left on their own and they weren't as young. There's an energy yeah. to it that I think you still see in Return of the Jedi. That, yeah, I mean the the yeah. whole speeder bike, the whole speeder bike chase yes. with you know that was that was again all you know, Ben Burt with the sound design and saying okay we're gonna splice together the sound of thunder and these airplanes and we're gonna do all this stuff and speed it up and obscure it and it and it's unreal and then they just have a guy walking through the redwood forest with a steady cam for like five miles and then they speed it all up and it looks like you're flying through the forest. These are like the scrappiest effects, but when they put it all together, it was just unbelievable. And it's yeah. like, yeah. And it still and looks so good. I mean, you can tell when he's doing, when CGI has been melded into it and thing like that, but there's a thing when one of the speed bike things crashes into um, a tree and then you see flame, like they did an actual little explosion right. and it looks so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And another name that I I would remiss to be remiss to forget here is Ralph McQuarrie, who is essentially like the concept artist for everything in Star Wars from before the first film through Jedi. And he left he left, I think, mid-production during Jedi because he and Lucas, I think, butted heads on how the Ewoks were supposed to look. Really funny that like even like the guy who's like the biggest Star Wars artist of all time had issue with the Ewoks. And I'm like, yes. come on, come on. Come he was on. Like, he was like, you can have cute things. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> let us let, let us have cute things and uh, allow Star Wars to be cute sometimes, you know? Mm. And so, so the fact McQuarrie just like his vision and the way, like, if you go back, he's got a book that is like, this massive like coffee table book that has all of his art from the first three, three movies. And when you look at the way that they were able to pull off his vision from the page to the screen, it's, it's just impeccable. It's amazing what they were able to do um, even with things like the speeder bike chase and the way that they did it, because that's, that is a damn video game brought to life, you know, it is and the, the kinetic nature of it, the movements, the, the sense of danger. I mean, I, I was even now like I, you can go back and you're like, wow, this really holds up, you know, no, 40 years later. Yeah, it's the scene in Captain America, the first Avenger, where they're doing very similar things. They're, I don't think it's a speed bike, but they're doing a very there's a motorbike through a thing. And it's am I watching it going, this is very Return of the Jedi. And then watching the L.A.M. documentary and goes, yeah, Joe Johnston worked on that. I'm like, that makes all the sense in the world. Now I get why <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it's such a good scene. I mean, the action sequences really work. It's um, from the fight on the vessel with Jawa to Jawa to um, the the jungle scene, the forest scenes in Endor when they're with the speed bikes to the final showdown with um, Luke and uh, Vader. It is mm-hmm. those act- all those action scenes, which I have to give credit to Mark Wand, um, work. Like, yeah. It may be of George's vision, but someone actually had to practically go down and actually construct yeah. those. And those, I mean, I love the scene between Vader and Luke when Luke is like, oh no, I know you're conflicted. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's, and Vader in that moment, you, you see him begin to question. It's a really interesting physical performance because considering seeing, it's a helmet. <laughs> yeah, it's a helmet. It's like, how are you doing this? It's like, there's this, um, he says, you don't know the power of the dark side. I must obey my master. But even in that, it's like, you see this, the camera lingers on him for an extra moment where you get the sliver of contemplation. It's the first sign of doubt that we've ever seen about the choices that Vader's made leading up to this point. And it's just, it's interesting that it comes across, like, even like you're saying, with a helmet over his face, and he's just questioning his decision. And he knows that Luke is right. That's he the does. thing. Like a, but but yeah. he's too far gone at that point. You know, he's he's already he's already on the dark side. And he's, um, he's, he slaughtered all the younglings. Uh, why they're called younglings, George. Um, he slaughtered all the, young, the younglings, and he is who he is. Yeah. But you're right, the camera lingers on him. And the fact that it's, he says, I must um, obey my master. It's not like, yeah, I enjoy this. I like, no, I made a choice and now I must obey. Yeah. And it is such a good, and the fact that Luke is all in black, I think is really, mm-hmm. really smart because it's showing that he could also go to the, to the mm-hmm. dark side. And I noticed when they get Anak- uh, Hayden Christensen as Anakin in the prequels, they dress him very similarly, but he makes the choice to go further with his Luke, yeah. doesn't he now knows he has a family to fight for when yeah that family he had was murdered at the beginning now he has a family to fight for at the end of this movie and he wants to he wants to do that um yeah. but no the imagery of just the emperor um dark side um sitting in front yeah. of that big <laughs> window i i will always like just his performance as the emperor is just so goddamn delicious it's um and the way that it's all the way that it's all coming together when the emperor's there with him um with with vader luke and palpatine and then the endor battle happening on the the planet and then you have the space battle happening with the fleet this sort of three-tiered conclusion yes this is something that they would they would do later with like Phantom Menace. They did the same thing where they had the three different conclusions happening at once in the, in the last act. And so this split co- climax was just sort of leveling up because in the first Star Wars, it's just the, the X-Wing fighters going down and, you know, bombing the, the Death Star. And, and, yeah. and that was sort of the, the conclusion. Then in the second film, you have an empire, it's Luke and Vader, but then you have everyone else kind of trying to save Han and that happening at the same time as Luke and Vader. And so they just kind of built upon themselves. It was like bigger and better as they got to each successive film. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I just, I love the fact that this was all happening simultaneously and yet it doesn't feel overwhelming. It, 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 it moves and that the pacing was, was really, really good for this. 
It really is. And I do love that end sequence. I love the fact that it is um, Billy D. Williams as, as um, uh, Lando. Lando. And yeah. finally in the Millennium Falcon again, like yeah. uh, this great line was like, she's the fast ship in the fleet. And just Lando going, yeah, I know. <laughs> it was my ship. <laughs> well, yeah. Lando gets, I mean, because we talk about he this does, film being it, about redemption. Yeah. He gets to be redeemed and be a hero. Whereas like in Empire, we were like, well, you turned your back on Han. You know, it's like, you don't know who he is at the end of, of Empire. He's all we know is that he's turned his back on him and he says his hands are tied, but you know, it's like we we don't know at the end. So it was nice to see him get get the turnaround and get to be the hero in this one. Even though he does get kind of lumped with all the ex, um, uh, Basil ex- exposition. Sorry, I was just trying to think of the word. Yeah. I go Basil exposition from Austin Powers. He gets yeah. all the exposition dumps. Like, oh no, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is what's mm-hmm. happening. So I do feel a little bit sorry for such a charismatic actor and character, especially yeah. in Empire where he gets to be charming, but you can't trust him. He got the cape. And it's this really amazing, brilliant character. And he does get that redemption, but he's like the exposition, the exposition guy. Like they didn't quite know what to do with like Han. It's like, okay, so this movie has to be about Luke and Vader. What do we do with Lando, who we created this amazing character in Empire? And what do we do with Han? Um, so yeah. I think there's a little bit of that. But I think like a lot of third movies, you've established a lot of things and sometimes the focus has to be on something else. And I think the focus has to be on Luke. You're the one who's, st- yeah. you're the one that you start with in um, New Hope and he's the one that you have to end with in Jedi. It's right, right. his story. Um, even if the other characters may seem more interesting, it has to be, his relationship with Darth Vader, because that's kind of the through line of all three movies. And you can see them also kind of wrestling with that with Han Solo, because it's like he's down on the uh, on Endor and you have him kind of running around and he's having sort of a, uh, I don't know, it's like some slapstick moments that work out because now he's been he's officially Indiana Jones. So mm. he sells these things really well. But you have to do that without, you know, he's still the supporting character. This is Luke's movie. It is. And this is. This is about him. Um, so I, you know, man, the, I'm just thinking back to like the way they jump between these three different things and how that whole, the that whole scene, the attack on the second Death Star where the Millennium Falcon is like, you know, flying in and you've got the, you know, the TIE fighters like coming towards the camera. Some of this stuff is some of the most incredibly staged special effects ever. And you completely forget that most of this stuff is miniatures. Yes. It's like, it looks so well done. It's just like, and then you see photos years later of like George Lucas and the other crew guys, like walking around this miniature stage with these tiny little ships. And you're like, that's how you did it. And it's like, I don't, I'm, I'm blown away. Yeah. Cause it was the same, a lot of the same crew who went on to aliens, wasn't it? Yeah. Cause they would. Yeah. Cause um, though they got a very annoyed at James Cameron cause he didn't know what a tea break was. And I'm like, Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a big, even I love still live in a very colonized British place tea time is vital um but it's how you have a swim (laughs) it's yeah but it is um they were the masters of miniatures and there's some i mean each opening shot of star wars has go into space and then you see a ship and it's like a trademark and i love how they do the ships so much it is just it's it's perfect 
and when you have some of the best sound designs um, and uh, yes the Wilhelm scream actually shows up twice I think the the second one was added in later I don't think it was in the original but when he, yeah. the guy's been thrown off the vessel into the into the desert there's a famous Wilhelm scream yeah but um and I, and I love the scene once they've actually gotten to the reactor and then the Falcon is is flying out of the Death Star. How yes. badass it is when the, the the flames are chasing them. And it, it, it was always funny to me because it's like in the first movie, it was like you had like this tiny little target that you had to hit. And now in the new Death Star, it's like, well, let's make it big enough so your ship can fly into it. Yes. <laughs> it, was, it was it was good. It was See, good. The, em- I, the then- Emperor always has a flaw in his plan. It's either yeah. um, tiny little hole, which can be shot and destroy the whole thing. Or they're pretending they haven't finished it, so that so they know the rebels think it's unoperational. But it is operational. Yeah. <laughs> but there's still a massive thing with it. We're friggin' um, Millennium Falcon. Yeah, I've seen the Family Guy ripoffs too many times, yeah. and it's like, oh wait, there's this one little hole. Well, can we just cover that with a bit of cardboard? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like the final battle between Luke and Vader and Palpatine, I love the way that it's encapsulated very well in this name change that happened. I don't know if you're, are you, you're familiar with the name change, right? So originally this was called Revenge of the Jedi. Yes, but they thought it sounded too harsh. Yeah, Lucas was kind of, he was, he was sour on it because it was like, you know what, the revenge is not a, uh, it's not a virtue of the Jedi to, to, to be vengeful. Yes. And so, which, which makes sense now because this is not a story about revenge, uh, was a story about redemption and forgiveness. And, you know, we get into that and having Vader go so far to the dark side, but still somehow be able to be saved mm-hmm. by Luke. Um, I thought it was also interesting, like Vader has to forgive himself in some way, because like when the helmet comes off the end, he he has to allow himself to be redeemed in order to accept Luke and to accept his forgiveness and yes. and what Luke has seen in him. He also has to go back to being Anakin, which is taking the helmet off because right. Darth Vader has is is the helmet. Like it's yeah. been invoked so many times. I remember watching a episode of Ahsoka when Hayden Christensen comes in and he's walking through some mist. You see the silhouette of Darth Vader and the that yeah. dun, 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 a little bit of that skull covered up. Yeah. Um. So he has to take off his helmet to not be Darth Vader anymore, which is right. part of the redemption. He has to go back to being Anakin. And I yeah. think that's the um, that's kind of the crux of it. Like to be saved, you need to go back to being Anakin. And and as an adult, that that revelation just kind of took me took me back because I was like, oh, so that's the return of the Jedi is his yeah. helmet coming off, Anakin's back. This is a double entendre. This is not just the literal return of Luke. This is bringing Anakin back from yes. the dark side, the return of the Jedi. So I thought that was, that's wild as well. And it's interesting how the story switches in terms of its themes from empire to Jedi, because an empire strikes back. Luke is trying to banish the darkness from inside himself. He's trying to push it away and not become his father. And then the theme in return of the Jedi is Luke must save, find and save the light that is in his father. I think it's also accepting that there is darkness in him and being able to cope with that, which is again, why he's wearing yeah. all black when in that final yeah. scene, it's kind of um, because the Jedi and the Sith or the Jedi and the dark side is all about the light and the dark. It's like them constantly fighting each other. It's the classical good versus evil. But I think at the end, Luke kind of realizes that he is his father's son, which means 
there is darkness there, but he can right. live with it and not let it take him over. So then he becomes a um, another pawn to the emperor, which yeah. is what Darth Vader is. And that is what is l- put literally on screen in the prequels. It is literally watching Palpatine turn this kid into his toy, essentially, his, his, yeah. his slave, which is why he needs to be obedient. So it's, um, yeah. yeah, it's... Don't come in together. <laughs> yeah, and and to, to take it a step further, I think it's the the other thing that's coming through in this sort of final confrontation is that the force is is been built up as the most powerful thing in the universe here, but that what we're finding is that the thing that is more powerful than the force, both good and bad, is your love for your family. Yeah, and for you know for the that family is what drives Luke to the end. It's what drives him to save uh, Vader, but also. It's the thing that Vader realizes is more powerful than the Force. And so that's when he brings up his sister. And he says, well, if I can't turn you, maybe I can turn your sister. And then that's what causes Luke to lash out. And that's and that's where he finds his weakness, because it's both his strength and his weakness is the family, the, the yeah. drive to protect your family. But every time I says that, he says that, I'm like, you're not turning Carrie Fisher. She's just going to yeah. look at this and go, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> Not no. interested. Um, only because it's Carrie Fisher playing Leia. And Leia is such her own person that um, more than Luke, then I think that she just would have gone, eh. <laughs> yeah. Even though that line is great and he wants to fight for her sister. I'm like, you do realize who you're talking about. But she's yeah. not. She's not interested. Um, <laughs> she's got her own things to do. But it's... Um, it's kind of amazing, but I love the fact that, yeah, it's all about family. It is all about reconnecting with who you are, where you come from, and finding redemption and yourself within that. It's, um, and I love this is, well, maybe a continual sister. And that's when you see the anger, because he knows he can use it, the anger build up on Luke again. Because um, I really love Hamill's performance in this. I think it's yeah. really, I think it's mm-hmm. when you look at where he was in 77 and you look where he is in. 83 i think you can see such a growth of yeah. depth of performance uh, that it is really really cool and he he looks the most comfortable in he does. his skin as luke as he ever has in star wars yeah so which that, works for the first one because he's this edgy kid yeah. who doesn't quite <laughs> he can't fit into his own skin and by this one he's a full-fledged adult and he's um yeah yeah, he knows he knows what's out there in the galaxy now. Yeah. So for him, it's like he knows what his purpose is. He knows what he wants to do and what he's called to do. And it's um, to to touch on the forgiveness aspect again, which is like a theme that ex- exists both in this and Field of Dreams. Which is the more when I watched Return of the Jedi, I was like, oh yeah, this was perfect for Field of Dreams. Yeah. Um, the fact that Luke has to forgive his father in order to you know to not give into his anger that's the that's the first thing that he has to do and it's this very personal decision because his his father's a horrible guy and he knows that like just because i've forgiven him for for who he's become or for what he did doesn't make it it doesn't change all the bad stuff that he's done but i need to need to do this to try to save him and that was that was something that was interesting to me is that it's like He's doing the right thing in the moment, regardless of if he's forgiven by Leia, regardless if he's forgiven by anyone else. It's it's him and his father, and it's like a very personal thing that I um, that resonated with me more this time around. And then finally, 
that point when Darth Vader sees the Emperor like killing Luke, and you see that moment where it's like, okay, now he's turned. Yeah, and 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 Darth Vader's like, okay, I need to do something about this. That well, was... no, it's also practical. You can't defeat the Emperor if you don't kind of switch Darth Vader because Darth yeah. Vader is this unstoppable force. I mean, it, there's nothing better than watching um, Darth Vader, especially in Rogue One, when you just see the lights, red lightsaber come up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then he just goes full Jason on everyone. And you're like, yeah, yeah because... Darth Vader is a badass. He is the most hideous, evil, dark-sided creature in the thing. And you are not going to beat the Empire unless you somehow beat him or you get him on your side. And I think there is mm-hmm. a real practicality to what Luke is, is doing. He knows he's not. they're not going to ultimately defeat the whole Empire if they don't take out um, Darth Vader somehow. And it is yeah. he does it through you're my father, I need to bring you back into the to the light side. Yeah. Um, and, and then you get that line yeah. where he says, I'm I'm not leaving you here, I've got to save you. And he tells him, you already have. Yes. That's just that sweet moment. Yeah, Sweet moment. It's the, I want to play catch with you. It's, yeah. yeah, it is. Um, though Ray had not as much to forgive his father for. His father grew right. old and grew kind of, you know, I'm old. Um, where there's and uh, Luke has to forgive a whole bunch of stuff. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you just you destroyed a planet, all this stuff. You know what? Yeah, you've well, done you've done some shit. I mean, yeah. you really. <laughs> I'm saving you, but there's some stuff you need to reckon with. Yeah. Um, though, so I'm not because of all that. I'm not as I used to be when they swapped it over to um Anakin to Hayden Christensen. I was so mad again. Not my Star Wars, apparently. Freaking put Anakin in and like, no, that yeah. makes sense. He's he's yeah. now going back to when he was good. Not yeah. if he's older, Darth Vader, um he's he's obviously very quickly, but he's kind of been he's going back to when he was a Jedi, not when he was a Sith yes. Lord. I think that's what it is. Yeah. And that whole that whole scene, this is sort of a creature comfort for me. The um the celebration at the end of the movie of you know how the original ending plays with the yubnub which by the way i i did not realize till a few years ago that yubnub that whole song was composed by john williams son and so there was a collaboration there with his son on that very very interesting um but i was i was again sort of the perfect age for the special editions to not bother me so I actually didn't mind the ending that they changed where it I, kind of expands the scope. I, I get it because here's, here's the thing. I understand that the empire has fallen and you have to communicate that. So yes. it works really well with that. So beautiful does. score. John Williams did great. That being said, there's something really special about the diegetic nature of, of the original Yubnub scene and how it's like, this is what they're hearing in the moment. This is what our our heroes are celebrating with. The, the Ewoks are singing. They're playing uh, drums on the Stormtrooper helmets. And you, you're just loving it. every minute of this. And then it just takes us into our end credits. But I, I there's also something to be said to see all the different planets and their celebrations at the yeah. same time. I don't mind it because I think you need to because this isn't... I think I, I prefer the microcosm of just them celebrating. Um, and that that's what you're seeing, that's what they're partying, they're dancing to Yapnub. It's you know, it's it's all it's all happening and it's thingy. But then 
I do see how you need to communicate that this is bigger than Endor. This is much bigger. They have actually destroyed the Empire. All these planets that they conquered are now free. Though, so what do they do? What are that planet where they're like the the, the stormtroopers like being like held above them? I'm like, wait, is that like a guy they've just killed and now they're like <laughs> his body? What what is happening? It's just this, it's a blip. It's yeah. happening on the side of the screen, and I'm just looking at it going. What just happened? Like yeah. <laughs> that went yeah, dark. What is that? <laughs> what is that? What do they do? Yeah. Oh God! Um, poor Terminator Morrison clone. Um, no, it's it, yeah, but I think in terms of ending, because the thing with the three original movies is that they are, even though there is so much at stake, and they keep telling you that this is a bigger thing, they are very intimate, small scale movies. Yeah. They um, sorry. <laughs> They are all happening kind of in almost one location. Like mm-hmm. the bulk of the first one is on the Death Destroyer. The bulk of the second one is on Cloud City. Um, the bulk of the third one is on Endor. So they're kind of weirdly one location movies. And it's not until you get the um, the prequels and then the um, third trilogy where they expand and they go into different places and it's much more yeah. epic. But the, the core three are very very intimate so i can kind of understand why lucas put that ending on it because he wants to expand the universe but the three of them are just very small i mean big because they're planet size places that they're on but they are very kind of small and intimate stories within this larger scale that the other two um trilogies really expanded on yeah yeah and so i mean i i like i said i can appreciate both yeah. both ends of it both both versions uh but ultimately yeah i just it was it was so fun to re-watch this and come back and to be reminded you know why i love this ending so much and why at one point in time this was the last we ever had of star wars it was so to see to see you know this closing scene just close on the credits with with all of our friends that's cool it's it's just perfect i mean it's kind of hard to think of John Williams' work on this movie just not being iconic. And this is a man who's made very iconic scores yeah. um, to the point where they aren't, they're just, I don't know. I mean, the Jedi music is the Jedi music. Darth Vader's yeah. um, Imperial March is that piece of music. So, but just to have, yeah, just to have that, it ends. And then go into that score again and just like, yeah, yeah it's kind of perfect. It's just. Well, and the great thing with John Williams is like with the first two films, he's already done all of the work. He's created yes. all the themes. He's got Yoda's theme and uh, Leia and Han's theme and the, the Imperial March and everything. So when he gets to the, the third film, he's able to start to explore and sort of tweak these things and like, oh, how can I do this? And so it's like when you see Luke burning Darth Vader's body or Anakin's body, and you have this sort of almost like a, a these like light strings or something playing the Imperial March, but in a way where it almost it almost sounds like lighter. It's not as like ominous, but it's still the Imperial March. It's just a really he, he had all of this room to really like flex and be like, okay, I'm gonna do this with this theme and that, because I've already done all of the groundwork and I've laid this all out for you. Exactly, which happens a lot with John Williams, actually. He tends to write a score, and then it's like, can you come back and do this? And he's like, yeah, I've already done it. I just yeah. need to tweak it. Yeah, I just <laughs> yeah. need to 
um, which must make life so much easier. It's like the poor guy, but the poor guy still has to keep coming back and doing Star Wars. So yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, he still gets nominated for it as well. It's like, you wrote this score in 1976, probably. I mean, yeah. But yeah, it's still perfect. It's, yeah, I mean, this works. I mean, the score, it's just one of those movies where everything on the level works. Yes, I get, I don't think it's a perfect movie. I think that is Empire. Even mm-hmm. I think in terms of a perfect Star Wars movie, that is the that's Empire. This one's a little rough around the edges, only because I don't. I think I have a lot easier time of watching Empire as its own thing. I can't watch Jedi as its own thing anymore, and I don't know yeah. why exactly. I so it's interesting. Yeah, and it, it lands the plane on the trilogy. I think as good, if not better, than most yes. third installments in in trilogies like you said like it's it's harder to watch this alone i know i i watched it um back in june um on imax for its 40th anniversary i was gonna say this movie is 40 years old yes yeah so i was like okay i'm 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 hyped for this and as soon as i was done watching it the first thing i was like i want to go watch the other movies like i was it was just like it's it's great to watch but it's it's just it makes you want the rest of the trilogy in a different way than like empire for me is just like modern art i don't know it's it's i just watch empire thing. and that's done i don't need to watch the first i don't need to watch the third but yeah you watch the third i'm like I can really watch force awakens now or i mean i think i yeah. might go back and watch empire or the watch um uh, the og yeah. so yeah it's not and it's probably that by design more than anything else because there's such a continuation of empire that you yeah. want to go back and watch other star wars empire i'm just like yeah perfect movie masterpiece done well, this is this is awesome. Oh I'm my glad god, we got to dig into this. This is yeah. I was expecting to talk about incredible. this much about Fields of Dreams. I'm like, oh god, we have Star Wars to go because that's going to be a huge <laughs> conversation. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. This has been absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, thank you, thank you for having me on. And um, I'm, I'm, you know, this was an honor to come back and also to be, you know, one of the first Star Wars movies you've covered. That's that's really special too. Yes, yeah, it's um, I've done solo a star wars story uh-huh. because i've been a little bit nervous about dipping my feet into the main main ones yeah. um yeah but well i hope we did we hope we did chris and andy proud i hope we did andy, yes yes i hope we did as well because there's a lot to cover with with this movie and this, yeah. this pairing was absolutely perfect because they are both two kinds of different nostalgia as well as trying not desperately not to be to, to be your father but in turn actually becoming your father um so thank you so much before we go please tell people where they can find your good work jackson all right well um you know i'm i don't have a lot of work there but uh because i'm not i'm not really an industry person but i am on twitter or x or whatever you're calling Mm -hmm. it nowadays um at jackson boren um just on there sharing uh my movie opinions and and takes and fun stuff on there uh when i'm on podcasts i will uh share those there as well um i'm gonna be on film feast again in a little while um I'll be on a uh, force five podcast uh, pretty soon Excellent. talking about talking about my uh, top five uh, Hollywood pictures releases oh, uh, as yes. I'm winding down my, my Hollywood pictures rewatch that I've been sharing uh, throughout the year. So it's that's a quite a journey that one. <laughs> that's, that's a fun one to, to do. So yeah, I'm on there and then, yeah, just uh just having fun on there so look looking forward to connecting with more more great folks on on there 
always a pleasure to follow. Uh, always really enjoy talking to you. Um, so this has been great. Schlocken all on all the pods. If you want to rate review, you can do that a few places. Yeah, it's Schlocken all one um, or Reading Geek on any of the streaming services. I'm pretty much, yeah, there's always something there. Um, yeah, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, um, I'm usually there. And yeah, so that's where you can find us. And we will be back with another double feature. All right, thanks, guys. Bye. Right. Yub nub. Yub nub. <laughs>